Friday, Friday. We love our jobs, but it is Friday. I think I love Friday equally as much as I love this job. We made it, guys. Yeah, we made it. We made it. Good morning, everyone. Don Lemon here, Poppy Harlow, Caitlin Collins, and it is Friday, and we are happy to be here, but we're happy that it's Friday and we get a couple <laughs> days off because next week is going to be a marathon. Oh my yes, gosh, we have a lot going on. Yeah, wait till you see how long we're on television. We like have cots <laughs> behind us that we're going to be sleeping it's on. It's going to be a busy week. Yeah, it is a busy week. And you know what happened leading into next week? There is an Oprah size endorsement that we have to talk about. It's in Pennsylvania's Senate race. Will it make a difference? Will it make a difference? Big one. Also, hours from now, Thousands of Twitter employees will learn if they are fired through email. Wait until you hear these details. And by the way, those employees, they're now suing Elon Musk. Not the email you want to get on a Friday. Also today, NBA star Kyrie Irving has finally apologized for that post promoting a movie filled with hateful statements about Jewish people after his team suspended him for five games without pay. We'll tell you what he told his millions of followers overnight. But this is where we're going to begin. The big headlines from the campaign trail this morning, just days from the midterms. Oprah Winfrey, Oprah, snubbing the man she turned into a household name, endorsing John Fetterman over Dr. Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania's very, very tight Senate race. It comes as the closers from both parties hit the campaign trail. President Joe Biden addressing the economy, his predecessor teasing another run for the White House. In order to make our country successful and safe and glorious, I will very, very, very probably do it again, okay? Very, very, very probably. Get ready. That's all I'm telling you. Very soon. Get ready. Get ready. Our CNN team is on the trail in the final days of the campaign. Let's start now. Jessica Dean live from Montgomery County just outside of Philadelphia. So good morning to you. Uh, It's interesting because Oprah helped to make Dr. Oz famous, but now she's endorsing his opponent, John Fetterman. Do you think it's going to swing any votes? Well, good morning to you, Don. Happy Friday, everybody. Look, it's rare that a celebrity endorsement or really any endorsement can really move the needle in a major way. But as you mentioned, this is an incredibly tight race. Everyone's looking for any edge they can get on both sides. So the Fetterman campaign and John Fetterman himself quite delighted to have this endorsement. And look, as you mentioned, there's a real personal connection here. Oprah, of course, making Dr. Oz a household name, backing his television show, having her on his television show. So the fact that she would come out and support a Fetterman is significant. I'll let you listen to what she had to say about it. You mentioned Pennsylvania. I have to see of this midterm campaign. Uh, I said it was up to the citizens of Pennsylvania. And of course, but I will tell you all this. If I lived in Pennsylvania, I would have already cast my vote for John Fetterman for many reasons. Fetterman is saying in a statement that he is honored to get this endorsement. And again, any edge that they can get in this campaign, they're going to take it. As for Mehmet Oz, this is the statement he released, his campaign released. I'll read it to you. It said, Dr. Oz loves Oprah and respects the fact that they have different politics. He believes we need more balance and less extremism 
in Washington. And guys, that is the message, the closing message, of course, we've heard again and get again from Oz, really casting himself as a moderate, as someone who's going to go to Washington and be bipartisan. Fetterman, of course, uh, trying to cast him as, as a fraud, essentially, and saying that he has lived here in Pennsylvania and is a, a person that will stand up uh, for the people of Pennsylvania. Those are kind of the dueling closing messages here in the Commonwealth. And worth noting as well, Oprah has weighed in and endorsed other Democratic candidates mm -hmm. in close races. But again, not that real personal connection that exists right. in this one. That's that's what really makes this unique. One of which we're going to have on uh, the show a little bit later. But that, I think that is, thank you very much. We appreciate that. I, I think that that's pretty strong coming from Oprah. If I've lived in Pennsylvania, I would have already cast my ballot for someone. For, for many Fetterman, reasons. For she many said. Pretty classy response reasons. from Mehmet Oz, though, saying yeah. and it was someone who put her first, she put first, first put him on her show, and, and that was his response. I don't think he had an alternative. You can't. Yeah, you can't, can't condemn Oprah. Nope. nope. <laughs> that doesn't go well for yeah. anyone. All right, now to Georgia where there has been a record-breaking early voter turnout. Our Eva McKen joins us from Atlanta this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Poppy. Senator Warnock continues to make this argument that Herschel Walker is not fit to serve in the United States Senate. And when he says this, he's really making a play for Republican voters as well. Um, but if neither candidate gets to this critical 50 plus 1 percent here uh, in Georgia, then it is going to trigger a December runoff. So I asked Senator Warnock about this on the trail. This race remains incredibly close. Are you prepared for it to go to a runoff? We are prepared to do whatever it takes to win. I'll tell you what's not close. My record and Herschel Walker's record. What I've spent my life doing and what he spent his life doing. My opponent, on the other hand, seems very focused on himself. And he seems to be willing to make up anything uh, in order to secure power. And what the people of Georgia, I think, are asking themselves is for what purpose? Now, for his part, Herschel Walker seeming really confident on the campaign trail, telling his supporters that millions of dollars have been spent to frame and attack his character only for this political newcomer to be running neck and neck with this incumbent senator. Gosh, Poppy? It, it is such a fascinating race and so many people already voting. Uh, Eva, thanks very much for being there. There's a lot going on on the campaign trail, a night of dueling speeches as candidates and their high-profile surrogates made their closing arguments in the final days. Here's what they told voters who are going to the ballot box on Tuesday. My objective when I ran was to build, build an economy from the bottom up and the middle out. And a fundamental shift that's working to compare this, you know, compared to the MAGA trickle-down economics. Biden and the far-left lunatics are waging war on Iowa farmers, crushing American energy attacking Iowa ethanol and strangling Iowa families with soaring prices. In this race, we're the only candidate that actually has hands-on uh, experience fighting against crime and, and gun violence. We have families all over the Commonwealth worried about crime, so much so they won't send their kids outside. Democracy is the political enactment of a spiritual idea. This notion that each of us has within us a spark of the divine. As of my office alignment, they used to tell me sometimes, Herschel, follow me. i take you to the promised land. So I'm going to tell all you, vote for me. We'll all get to the promised land. Let's fight for more. Let's fight for better. Let's never give up. Let's fight for freedom, fairness. Now, I don't know why you can't take a look at America and understand really how rare and precious this country is. All the state legislative races, all the local races, 
They are critically, critically, critically important. Not a joke. They're going to determine whether our democracy is sustained. If you care about election integrity, volunteers, an election worker, poll watcher, or a poll challenger, we need you. And of course, be sure to tune in next Tuesday. CNN will have special election coverage. It all starts at 4 p.m. Eastern. We'll be bringing you all the results. Look, it is Friday. Usually people are happy, but uh, the folks at Twitter, not happy. Twitter's warning employees to check your email today. You may be fired. Within hours, Elon Musk's company will begin mass layoffs. The cut's coming a little more than a week after he took over the social media platform. CNN's Christine Romans has more. Good morning. Yes, good morning. It's hey. not a good day. So how, how and when? They're going to find out through email, but when? Yeah, so 9 a.m., you know, East Coast, West Coast time or noon East Coast time. And if you're, if you're going to keep your job, you're going to get a, an email on your Twitter email. And if you lose your job, it, you're going to get it from whatever your other email address is. So it's kind of, they're expecting thousands of, uh, thousands of these. That, you know, they sent out a note yesterday. They closed all the offices. They said, if you're in the office, go home. If you're on your way to a Twitter office, uh-huh. don't come in. Mm-hmm. And you'll be getting an email to tell you whether you're going to have a job or not on Friday. So it's a, the Twitter email, not like Twitter, Twitter, but their yeah, Twitter they're, they're company email. email. Yeah. If your employment yeah. is not impacted, you will receive a notification via your Twitter email. If your employment is impacted, meaning you're fired... Uh, you'll receive a notification with next steps via your personal email. Wow, that's brutal. But I know that this has also sparked some lawsuits from these employees who work there now. There's already a class action lawsuit filed um, in San Francisco that they didn't give enough warning time. There are laws, local laws, California laws, and federal laws that you have to give people notice. And some of these laws are up to 60 days. A similar lawsuit against Tesla, Elon Musk just dismissed and said it was trivial. So he, he probably won't care about that lawsuit. But it is employees trying to say, hey, you can't just do this so quickly. Is it random? Is it actually, are they actually like drawing out of a hat these people get to work and these people don't? Or is he, it, I mean, have they had enough time to even speak to so these So he has complained. Employees? He has complained via, via Twitter this weekend that there seem to be 10 managers for every one coder. And he wants coders and engineers. And he doesn't seem to value the leadership and the management. So I think I think we can deduce that that is where you will see a lot of people lose their jobs. He wants coders and engineers. Okay. We're going to see what Elon Musk's Twitter is going to look like. I mean, this is a make or break day, really. I mean, he's going to probably cut half of the workforce. He is mused about having a workforce more like 3,000 employees instead of 7,500 employees. This would probably take Twitter's size of employees back to where it was when it went public, you know, when wow. it, way, way. Do you remember those right, days? Right, 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 <laughs> a long time ago. And, you know, he, he's talked about charging $8 a month for a, a check to verify who you are. You know, the, the verified check is what how you know that you're talking to a real person. So we're going to find out what his... Elon Musk's Twitter will look like. And today is a very important day in that. Also, what's so fascinating about that to me is the verified people on Twitter, the the sports figures, the politicians. That's why so many people are on Twitter is to see what they're saying. To follow Caitlin Collins. Not to follow me, but I'm saying to follow LeBron James, (laughs) to follow these celebrities who are on there and speak freely on there. And the idea of charging them is... um, Interesting. So interesting. Well, eight of the past 10 years, the company has lost money, right? So he has probably overpaid for this company. He's got to find ways to make money, right? Yeah. And that's cutting that's employees what, and charging. And being hyperbolic on Twitter. Yeah, he's, exactly. It's an audience, yeah. Christine Romans yeah. will be watching closely yep. for those thousands of people who are getting that email today. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, Brooklyn Nets uh, player Kyrie Irving is finally now apologizing. This apology came overnight. He tweeted a link to the documentary that contains hateful rhetoric against Jewish people 
a lot of hateful rhetoric. The apology from him came after the Nets suspended him. Here is what he said shortly before he apologized when he was talking to the press. So I'm not here to compare anyone's atrocities or tragic events that their families have dealt with generations of time. I'm just here to continue to expose things that our world continues to put in darkness. I'm a light. I'm a beacon of light. That's what I'm here to do. CNN Sports Carolyn Mano joins us now. I mean, j- just the things that are said in this in this documentary. Mm-hmm. There are so many things that are hateful against Jewish people, tying them directly to the slave trade. There is so much here for people to understand why it matters so much that you put it out there. What about the apology now, finally? Yeah. And but as I said yesterday, and everyone was like, "Oh, well, he did. He's made a statement." I said, "Where's the? I didn't see an yeah. apology in yeah. any of that." Well, you clearly pointed out what was most important about yesterday, which is it was an apology that wasn't an apology, and that's why it's so important for us at some point to actually see Kyrie Irving apologize. Statements are one thing; messages on social media are one thing. But every time we've seen him speak, he has said, "Oh no, no, I know best. This is me." You know, he's been described as a lot of things. He's been described as difficult, complicated, mercurial. He's oppositional is what he is. Anytime somebody tells him something, he's going to do the opposite. And so, you know, it's good to actually see an apology on social media. I think that that will prevent the Nets from extending this five-game suspension. But he also said in that same apology on social media that he should have better pointed out the parts of this film that he agreed with and the parts that he disagreed with. And so that very much leaves the door open for what exactly is this? What exactly are you saying when this should be clear cut? Look, you're reading my mind because maybe this is how he really feels. And maybe they need to deal with how he really feels rather than forcing him to apologize. If he, because for all of his actions so far, it seems to me, and I think to most people, that he has a strong belief in how he feels. I'm not saying that it's right, but if he feels that way, why force him to apologize? Maybe you should deal with the issue of him feeling that way, his beliefs, and whether he sh- you think that he should represent your organization instead of forcing someone into a position that they don't believe. Absolutely. This is absolutely what he believes. He's been very clear about that. He said at the end of this post, he is a seeker of truth. He is who he is. And, you know, this documentary is nuanced and complicated, but it's very clear that there are anti-Semitic tropes in the film. It says that black people are the original Israelites is what it contends. And that is a theory that he identifies with and agrees with. He's been very clear about that. So now it's about... Okay, what did the Nets do from here? Is this apology on social media enough? Is this a problem that's going to continue? He has had a number of instances where he's been oppositional in the NBA. It started with his time in Boston. Now with the Nets, we all know about the vaccine. You know, he's a complicated person. And to your point, Don, I think it's well noted, he, he needs to deal with some of the things that he feels and figure out a way to express them in a way that makes sense, that doesn't do irreparable harm to communities. And that's really what this is about. Carolyn Mano, thank you very Thanks much for that. So we are going to be joined a little bit later in the show by Bob Costas. We'll talk a lot about Can't this. Can't wait to hear what Bob Me has too. to say. Yeah. Me too. Ahead, new CNN reporting Iran asking Russia for help to build up its nuclear weapons capabilities. And millions of Ukrainians are now in the cold and without power after Russia's latest attacks. Christian Amanpour is going to be live on the ground for us in Kyiv. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We've got some new reporting this morning on Iran seeking Russia's help to boost its nuclear weapons program. That's according to U.S. intelligence sources who tell CNN 
Tehran may be looking for a backup plan should a nuclear deal fail to materialize. That's something the White House has said is a long ways off. So we have CNN White House reporter Natasha Bertrand. Natasha, what are you learning from these intelligence sources? Yeah, Caitlin, so sources tell me that U.S. intelligence assesses that Iran has been asking Russia for help in bolstering its nuclear weapons program, and that's through the provision of nuclear materials. It's through nuclear fuel fabrication, which, of course, could help fuel Iran's nuclear power reactors and potentially shorten that breakout time that it takes Iran to actually develop a nuclear weapon. Now, it's unclear at this point how Russia has responded to this, but Iran is essentially hedging its bets in the event that a deal does not happen and it needs to reconstitute its nuclear program very quickly. Same goes for if a deal actually does go through. Iran is very worried that a future administration will simply pull out of a deal like the Trump administration did. So right now they're looking for a kind of backup plan. And what is the White House, what are U.S. officials saying about this? Because it wasn't that long ago that they had said they were weeks away from actually reaching a deal with Iran on the nuclear program. Now they say basically it's nowhere in sight. Exactly right. So this is not on the agenda for the administration at this point, a new nuclear deal. And that is because uh, of Iran's brutal suppression of protests, of its help uh, for Russia in Ukraine, selling them uh, hundreds of drones to use there. And so their reaction right now is, look, our nuclear deal is very far off. And so it's unclear at this point how they're actually going to uh, work with Iran uh, to prevent this kind of cooperation with Russia from moving forward. And actually, we do have a quote uh, from the National Security Council spokesperson, Adrian Watson, who told me that, you know, we have been growing with partners to expose. We've been working with partners to expose the growing ties between Iran and Russia and hold them accountable. We will be firm in countering any cooperation that would be counter to our non-proliferation goals. So it remains unclear how they're going to react to this, more likely more sanctions are in the works, but this is all part of the growing kind of Iran-Russia cooperation here, just in the broader geopolitical space that yeah. the U.S. and allies are very concerned about, Kaylin. Yeah, Iran's been helping Russia. We'll see if Russia does the same. Natasha, thanks for joining. And this morning, Ukraine's president says some four and a half million people in the country have been hit by power outages. That's after a barrage of Russian strikes damaged the country's energy infrastructure. In the capital, Kyiv's mayor says nearly a half million homes have no electricity, raising fears of a dark winter with no heat. We want to get straight to CNN's Christian Amanpour live for us uh, for CNN this morning in Kyiv, Ukraine. Christian, this is devastating. We are both, we've both been there. You're there now. It gets cold. What are you seeing on the ground? Well, it's chilly already and we are seeing people actually getting more and more fearful about what uh, an increasingly dark and cold winter might mean if, as you've just been reporting, this collaboration between Russia and Iran, in other words, the drones that Iran is providing Russia with, the missiles that Russia is using against this and other cities, against their energy infrastructure. If that continues apace, it's going to be very, very hard for the people here. And we were in a home last night where we just arrived, you know, a few minutes before actually electricity went on, but they'd been without it for about nine hours. One of the women we talked to has a baby. They have to figure out how to cook. They don't even have gas in the house, so they're buying, you know, like little gas stoves to heat food for the baby. They're, you know, that, that, their, their new weapons for this phase of the war are things like power packs for their phones to charge, or things like little oil lamps, are things like, you know, using 
water bottles, literally, to diffuse light through the torch of an iPhone. And just like what we're seeing behind, which are the, you know, the, the, the reclaimed and destroyed Russian tanks to highlight the Ukrainian progress and defiance against Russia, their new weapons are, as I've just described, to try to defend against mm -hmm. an attack on civilian infrastructure that they hope just doesn't get worse throughout this winter. And, Christian, there is a big question mark about, you know, especially if Republicans uh, take over one or both chambers in, in the midterms, what financial support for Ukraine will look like going forward from the U.S. You're there. You had a chance to speak with U.S. Senators Portman and Coons, a Republican, a Democrat. They're yeah. in Kiev on this bipartisan trip. What did they tell you? Well, precisely that. The first question was... Is there going to be any change in America's full-throated support for this country if there's a shift in the balance of power after the midterm? Because you've heard what some Republicans have said about whether or not they, quote, continue with a blank check. Those were the words of the minority leader in Congress. But I was speaking, as you said, to those two very senior senators who met with President Zelensky and who came out again with a very robust defense of their vital, for U.S. Uh, national security as well as for the Ukrainians, support for this effort. Here's what they told me. This is not the time for us to back off. In fact, it's a time for us to redouble our efforts because the Ukrainians have shown through their bravery, their courage on the battlefield that they are making progress, have made tremendous progress in the last two and a half months. It's because of that, out of desperation, that Vladimir Putin is doing what we see behind us here tonight. He can't win on the battlefield. So instead, he's turning to attacks on the civilian population. But I think the overwhelming bipartisan majority of members of Congress respect that the Ukrainians have fought fiercely, have fought bravely. Americans have stood for freedom at home and abroad for decades and decades. And I find it hard to believe uh, that we would abandon the Ukrainian people right now as they are facing, in some ways, the most challenging test of this war. And during that conversation, you could see the blackout behind us. This was last night we spoke. Now these two senators and their delegation are in The Hague in the Netherlands, where they are pushing the case for a special tribunal to try Russian war crimes, alleged Russian war crimes under a new, it's called the crime of aggression. That is what they're aiming for. And that's what they're doing in The Hague today after their visit to Kiev. Back to you. Christian Amanpour on the ground for us in Kiev. Christian, thank you very thank much you for the reporting. Ahead, uh, Governor, California Governor Gavin Newsom, Democrat, has some tough love for Democrats. What he's saying about his party's chances in the midterms. Plus, in Pennsylvania, there were 1.8 million mail-in ballots went out. Two and a half million come back. There's a uh, hello, a question maybe. Are you sure about that? <clears throat> yeah, look it up. Sure. Can we Google Actually, it? Uh, Google. I wouldn't. Yeah, you. You don't. It's what? everywhere. Election deniers in 2020 turned poll watchers in 2022. CNN reports ahead. We are in the final stretch election day, just four days away. Early voting is way up this year across the country. And so far, Democrats have sent in more ballots than Republicans. But California Governor Gavin Newsom not optimistic about his own party's chances. Listen to this. Does it feel like a red wave? Yeah, of course it does. And, and again, uh, uh, I'm not paid to say that. I'm paid to say, you know, we, fate and fear, we're getting crushed on narrative. We're going to have to do better in terms of getting on the offense and stopping on the damn defense. 
Let's talk about that pollster communication strategist Frank Luntz is here. What do you think? Is Gavin Newsom the right? The damn defense. I try to be careful about projections because you're going to have the tape and you're going to play it at 2 a.m. <laughs> we would never do that to you. you of course well, you would do that to me. <laughs> but every week I raise the Republican projections for the House. And for the first time, I now think that it is 5149 that it will be 5149 in the Senate for the Republicans, that as the economy takes center stage, and particularly affordability, not inflation, affordability, that helps the Republicans. And as abortion and the focus on Donald Trump recedes, Republicans do better and better. And where's that majority coming from? Uh, it comes state. from two out of three states between Pennsylvania, Georgia, and the state we never talk about, Nevada. Mm -hmm. Republicans have to win two out of those three. I believe that they actually will. But to me, the more important story is what happens on the day after and the day after that. I'm afraid of the vote counting. And I've wanted to be here with you all to alert your viewers that in Pennsylvania, which I believe is ground zero, Philadelphia, for what's going to be a crap show, they count ballots so slowly. And the first ballots that are counted are from the machine. And then only later on, hours later, do they start to count the the paper ballots. So day of versus early voting. Exactly. And day of is going to help the Republican. Early voting is going to help the Democrat. And you're going to have people claiming that the election is stolen once again because the Republican will emerge with a five, six, maybe even eight point lead by midnight. Red mirage. Exactly. Yeah. Now, now, it is quite possible that Dr. Oz wins. In fact, I'd say the odds now are, again, right on that line, 51-49 that he wins. But he's going to have this big lead as of midnight, and it's going to get less and, and it's less. It's going to shrink. Exactly. And people are going to say, oh, it's, uh, you know, the ballots were under the table and they're stuffing or what have you, which we had in 2020, right? The same sort of thing. And, and we have to hold people accountable. But there's the other side, which is voter suppression. We have the biggest turnout in places like Georgia ever. People who want to vote can vote. People want to participate, can participate. The voices can be heard. So I'm saying to the Republicans, back off on corruption. I say to the Democrats, back off on suppression mm. and let's hold this election and let's stop tearing the country but That's apart. hard to say when you say back off on suppression when there have been people who have traditionally and with evidence um, edged out of the voting process. And I think, that, I think that we should be allowing people to vote as early and as often. We um, are. Yes, yeah. I agree well, with you. That's, we are. In well, Georgia, but we're not. When, when it's, hang on. on Friday, we're not. Saturday, we're not when you are limiting the number of ballot boxes, when you're limiting the number of hours, and you're limiting the number of days, when you're fighting against souls against the polls. What, people should be, I think, I think it should be a day off for Everybody. people to be able to vote. European countries. Some, it doesn't mean that, because a lot of people are voting, it doesn't mean that there aren't people who are taking advantage of suppressive tactics. And I understand that. A lot of people are voting and that there are record numbers. I get that. But we can't just Not say but. because that is happening. Two things are possible. Both can be possible at the same time. It's not one or the other. You ask Europeans, ask South Americans. Nobody gets to vote like we do. We have the most open system on the face of the globe. Doesn't mean it can't be improved. That's right. Exactly. Doesn't Words out of my mouth. Doesn't mean it can't be better here, right? But, but in Georgia, there was a lot of criticism that they got from Stacey Abrams in Georgia, and President she lost Biden in the White case. House. She lost her court case. Yes. And as Governor Kemp pointed out to us when we interviewed him, there has been record turnout in the state. And that election officials that people relied on so much after Trump was fighting to overturn the Georgia results said voter suppression is just as much of a lie as voter fraud. That's what Gabriel Sterling said.
and the Georgia laws were based on New York laws. And New York laws were not determined by Republicans. They were determined by Democrats. All I'm saying is, as we continue to cast dispersions at our electoral system, we're doing ourselves real damage. That's Young true. people do that. not believe that our democracy is working, and neither do their parents or their grandparents. But that doesn't mean that we can't talk about and find ways to improve. I do believe that there are suppressive tactics. But speaking of all of these people who are voting, there have been, what, more than 30 million people across 46 states that have already voted. And my question is, are we underestimating the early vote count, whether it's for Democrats or Republicans, because usually it favors Democrats, but maybe Republicans have learned their lesson mm. from 2020. Well, the governor of Florida, who may be a presidential candidate, is challenging Donald Trump directly. Trump has always said, only vote on Election Day. Mm -hmm. Governor DeSantis says, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. Vote early so that you're sure your vote gets counted. And Trump's campaign aides, when he was doing that in 2020, like, were like no. pulling their hair out yeah. and screaming into pillows because... They were like, we want people to early vote. We want to not just have Democrats have the advantage from early voting. We want that. And Trump was telling people, don't early vote because you can't trust it. Can, go ahead. Can we talk, too, about uh, Oprah's endorsement? Yes, here? I was just right, going to Let's talk that. about Oprah's endorsement. And, uh, Dr. Oz does not get a car. <laughs> Dr. Oz doesn't <laughs> need a car. Dr. Oz does not need a car from Oprah or another house. But I would like to ask you, what do you think? Because everyone's like, oh, this is big for Fetterman to get Oprah's endorsement. Remember a month ago, yeah. the statement from the Oprah camp was like, basically, we're not getting involved here. And then she just said, I, I would have, if I lived in Pennsylvania, I would have already voted for Fetterman for many reasons. Good for him? Uh, not necessarily. Huh. I know her. She's wonderful. And her commitment to, her, to the community, to making a difference, is we need more people like that. I know where you're going with this. Yes. She's seen as an elitist and, in Hollywood, and yeah. that may turn people off in Pennsylvania. Is that uh, what you're saying? Uh, in the places where she could make the greatest difference, her voice doesn't carry as much weight. But people have, uh, they won't, uh, but Oprah came from nothing. She's self-made, uh, and a self-made person who actually made Dr. Oz and into no a celebrity. Dr. Oz was a very... Uh, a neurosurgeon, I believe, right? And by the way, I owe him. I don't know if I want to talk about this no, on air in the morning. I had a stroke yeah. on the 10th of January of 2020. So I understand what he's going through. And I don't always speak as well as I should. Sometimes I lose my, my thinking. Thank you for the energy drink this morning. That helps me a lot. Anytime. Um, it's an issue of empathy. And in the end, what's more important was that debate itself. Mm -hmm. The debate where people looked at the camera, they looked in him, they listened to him, and they thought this is a good man, but maybe he's not ready to be a United States senator in a tough state, in a tough year, in a tough institution. What they want is someone who can be their voice. We've been asking this question. What they want is someone who can get results and someone who can be their voice. And it's why I'm thinking that when all the votes are counted, and I did not believe this last week, so I'm thinking that Dr. Oz may emerge hmm. victorious from that. And having an outsider like Oprah, we saw this with Hillary Clinton. She went into the same state in 2016. She was campaigning very much for, he was, for Hillary Clinton. It actually had a negative impact. We are looking for people who look like us, who talk like us, I think you're right. Think There's one part of your argument I'm not sure about. I don't know if they'll see Oprah as an outsider. Maybe they'll see her as an elitist. I see that. But they also see Dr. Oz as an outsider because he's not from Pennsylvania. He actually lives in New Jersey.
and he is the candidate. Thank and you, And there's Frank. the music, yeah. so I know the segment's over. Thank you, Frank. <laughs> this is it. They we'll play us to commercial. They will get to commercial. Thank and you. speaking of Frank Luntz, psychedelics. <laughs> oh, so you know my history. <laughs> it's true, by the way. It could be. We'll talk about that. It could be the next frontier uh, in drug legalization. A new CNN report on Americans turning to magic mushrooms as medicine. That's next. Plus, people are fed up. Seats on airplanes? Are they just too small? And what is the FAA going to do about it? Frank, what a great that was, discussion. That was a really great Thank you, friend. Thank you. Appreciate it. Personal. Yeah. So we just had this conversation this week with Dr. Gupta about the potential benefits of magic mushrooms. And uh, it just so happens that psychedelics are set to become legal in Oregon at the start of next year. But next week's election, it might change that. So joining us now, CNN correspondent David Culver. David, good morning. What is happening here? Hey, Don, good morning to you. So important to see what's happening with psychedelics in Oregon because similar efforts are now popping up across this country. And you might wonder if Oregon residents already voted back in 2020 to legalize psilocybin, magic mushrooms, then what's changed? Well, there is this uneasiness that's growing for some in the state that the state regulators may not be ready to control safely this mind-altering substance. On the nearly 1,000-acre New Frontier Ranch in Southern Oregon, Mike Arnold wants to explore uncharted territory. This will literally save people's lives because psychedelic medicine works. He's talking specifically about psilocybin, or magic mushrooms as most know them, a natural substance he firmly believes can bring internal healing. I thought this, I have to get this in the hands of as many people that are suffering as quickly and inexpensively as possible. But to do that, his company, Silo Wellness, had to go where psilocybin is legal. They chose Jamaica. With medical professionals on site to keep watch, vetted participants ingest the drug, medicine as they prefer. It was in a powder form that was mixed with like a juice. Are you thinking, oh gosh, what's this gonna do? Yeah, definitely nervous. Chrissy De La Cruz says she turned to the drug to help her grieve the loss of her sister and a recent breakup. Was feeling pretty lost and, and hopeless. So this is my room. So in June, she traveled down to Jamaica for one of the retreats. She says she remembers every detail from her altered state, but, like many, struggles to convey the experience through words. It almost was like I could see the life within everything around me. I, it sounds weird, but it's like, feel what it really is like to feel alive. Do you start to revisit some of, some of the loss and pain? There definitely was a lot of processing and healing that I was able to do during the ceremony and then especially afterwards too. Arnold wants to bring the same retreat ceremony, as he calls it, stateside, beginning in Oregon. In 2020, the state became the first in the U.S. to legalize the growth and distribution of psilocybin at licensed service centers to be taken under strict supervision and with restrictions on driving, opening a potential billion-dollar industry. Yeah, whoa! Folks like McMinnville farmer Jason Lampman, a dad of three toddlers, willing to spend nearly $50,000 to undergo the mandatory training and licensing and to build the infrastructure required for approval. I want to do it right here. My family's here. All of our other businesses are here. It's a farm crop. He plans to host people for a few hours. Over here, we'd have something like a yurt. As they experience a mind-altering journey amidst his small orchard. Do you think it's safe for the kids? There's a winery right there. 
People can drink as much alcohol as they want and drive down this road. I think that's a way more concerning conversation that I'm gonna have to have. It might sound so strange, something that's only happening way out west in places like here in Oregon, but other states across the country are also exploring this new frontier. Colorado likely to put legalizing psychedelics to a state vote. New Jersey and Washington have already reduced penalties for possession and personal use. More than a dozen other states actively studying the potential benefits or considering their own legislation. For centuries, psychedelics have been used for treatment and rituals by traditional cultures. America's public enemy number one. But in the 70s, with the war on drugs, they were criminalized in the U.S. Today, the medical community is studying psilocybin to treat PTSD, anxiety, depression, and even to curb alcohol use. But recent headlines raise concerns about the effects of mushrooms potentially sparking erratic behavior, the lingering unknowns and stigma creating a growing unease in Oregon. We just want to say no. We want to opt out for a while. More than 100 counties and cities in Oregon may be pushing back. State and Mayor Henry Porter, one of many who've secured November 8th ballot measures, allowing voters to ban psilocybin businesses locally. You feel like the community needs protecting from, from this measure? Yes. Why? I don't know what it does. I don't know how it would be controlled. I don't know how to keep kids away from it. I guess it's the fear of things we don't understand. A similar concern echoed back in southern Oregon, near New Frontier Ranch. It's here the legalization of cannabis proved messy in 2015, led to the participation of cartels, human trafficking, and water depletion. Legalizing a new drug? Not going over well here. Oh boy, you got that right. <laughs> Marianne Crandall lives next to the ranch. She's open to the potential therapeutic benefits, but worries about the impact. We have a very unique community and we want to keep it that way. Arnold sees psilocybin as a vital service that's more medicinal than recreational. There are people suffering right now that will get the peace that they need to, to make it through another season, to make it through another day, that they'll learn that they have value, that they have worth, that life has dignity, and that and they're special and they're loved and they're lovable. Don, much like cannabis, which today feels so mainstream and is now legalized in an increasing number of states, what's happening in Oregon with psychedelics this really could prove a roadmap for the rest of the U.S. If it's done right, providing for what those advocates argue will be a safe and regulated structure. We'll see. Yeah, you're so right about that with the comparison to marijuana. Now I walk around yeah. cities all over the country and I smell more marijuana than I do cigarettes. So Right? Yeah. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. See ya. So if you think plane seats are too small, changes are coming. I don't know. Are they going to get smaller? I don't know. Who knows? That's next. <laughs> yeah, that would be my The endless debate, how much smaller can airplane seats get? Americans fed up with tiny airplane seats, so thousands have flooded the FAA with complaints, hoping the government will actually do something to fix this. Our Pete Montine joins us live from Reagan National Airport. Can they actually do this and fit three seats on either side on a lot of these planes and, like, be within regulation? We'll see. You know, there is no rule against it, Poppy. The thing is, though, airlines keep shrinking seats. More people equals more profit. But what's so interesting here is that now the FAA is looking at this strictly from a safety issue. And passengers tell us, hey, at least it's a start.
Luxury is what flying was supposed to be. But these days, leg room is shrinking as passengers are getting larger. Things are definitely getting too small on planes. We're dying. And it doesn't matter what airline it is. I can't imagine seats or aisles being smaller than they are today. Now, the Federal Aviation Administration is considering whether to stop airlines from making seats smaller. The agency is under a congressional mandate to study whether seat size could slow an evacuation. But in 26,000 public comments, many focused on comfort. The idea is that the more people you can jam into a plane, uh, the more money you'll make. Flyers Rights President Paul Hudson says airlines are trying to squeeze out more profit. This week, six U.S. senators told the FAA to act urgently and not wait for seats to get any smaller. So I decided to put airlines to the test. Two things necessary for this little experiment of our own, a ticket and a tape measure. On this United Airlines flight, legroom was right at the industry standard, 30 inches. But it all depends on the airline. Legroom can get even tighter on ultra-low-cost carriers. It's tight. 27 inches is what we saw on this Allegiant Airlines flight. Flyers Rights proposes a minimum of 32 inches legroom and seats that are wider, dimensions it says would fit 90% of Americans. That would make a huge difference. In its comment to the FAA, the airline industry's top lobby said it would not compromise on safety, but told the government to stay out of regulating passenger comfort. The FAA and the Department of Transportation declined our interview requests. Their position to date has been how uncomfortable you are is between you and the, and the air carrier. One airline is making some changes to its legroom. You might be surprised to learn, Poppy, that Spirit is ordering new planes that allow for an extra two inches of legroom. We will see if the FAA acts on this issue in total. Remember, this is not going to happen anytime soon. More seats on a plane equals more money for the airline, but less seats and more room for you might make your ticket more expensive. Poppy? There you go. The never-ending debate on seat size. Pete Montine, thank you, friend. <laughs> two inches. How generous of Spirit Airlines. You're pro- they're probably going to charge you for those two inches. Tired of all these seats on the you-know-what-in-plane. Next, CNN is on the campaign trail in the final push for the midterms. We also have new CNN reporting on what the Justice Department may do about the sprawling investigations into former President Trump if he runs again. And new this morning, we are also getting word of South Korea scrambling jets after a new promulgation by North Korea. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Morning. That's usually how we just, we just say morning. 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 Oh, I always say morning. That's how he comes into the office every morning. (laughs) Good morning, everybody. <laughs> I'm Don Lemon alongside Poppy Harlow. I'm not even going to say her name today because it is We're fighting Friday, today. November. We're fighting because there's a big thing happening. I'm not talking about the election. I'm talking <laughs> about 
LSU versus Alabama. Oh, did her mug? Did you notice she yeah. changed her mug? I know. I noticed. I noticed. <laughs> <laughs> How could you not? We got to get to it, though. The candidates and their top surrogates are grinding on the campaign trail with four days left before the midterms, and CNN is with them every step of the way. This morning, we will be joined by New York Governor Kathy Hochul, who is locked in a tight race with a Republican in New York State. Can you believe that? Lee Zeldin. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Also, the CNN exclusive reporting this morning, the Justice Department is seriously considering the appointment of a special counsel in multiple investigations if Donald Trump decides to run for president again in 2024. And Kyrie Irving is now apologizing after the Nets suspended him for five games without pay after he promoted a film that is filled with hateful statements about Jewish people. Bob Costas will join us live to talk about that. And as we alluded to just moments ago, an SEC showdown in my hometown of Baton Rouge, Caitlin Collins, Alabama Crimson Tide, my LSU Tigers clashing on the gridiron tomorrow. You nervous? In Death Valley. I am not. We will talk. (laughs) See, I'm not even looking at her. But first, what was a marathon is now a sprint to the finish now. And John Fetterman just received a key endorsement in the tight Pennsylvania Senate race. I'm talking about Oprah Winfrey, arguably the biggest, one of the biggest celebrities in the world, throwing her support to Democrat over uh, Republican, his Republican opponent, Mehmet Oz, the man she helped make famous, by the way. You mentioned Pennsylvania. I have to see of this midterm campaign. Uh, I said it was up to the citizens of Pennsylvania. And of course, but I will tell you all this. If I lived in Pennsylvania, I would already cast my vote for John Fetterman for many reasons. Well, just ahead, we are going to speak to another Democrat who is locked in a key Senate race who was also endorsed by Oprah Winfrey. Sitting this morning is on the campaign trail for you. Jeff Selney is in Iowa, where former President Trump appeared at a rally last night and dropped the strongest hint yet at another White House run. Watch this. In order to make our country successful and safe and glorious, I will very, very, very probably do it again, okay? Very, very, very probably. Get ready. That's all I'm telling you very soon. Get ready. Get ready. I have a feeling we're going to be hearing a lot of that before an actual announcement is made. Jeff, this was good morning to you. This was Trump kicking off a final blitz campaign. Hey, Don, good morning. It was a campaign blitz, but the question is for which campaign? Uh, Yes, he's campaigning for the midterm election race. He was appearing here in Iowa to support Senator Chuck Grassley, who's running for his eighth term. But boy, uh, the biggest headline out of that speech last night here in Sioux City was about President Trump's own plans. He said, yes, uh, next Tuesday is the most important thing, but then he pivoted forward to a potential presidential run. So he's been talking about this for a long time. This, of course, is not going to come as a surprise to anyone. At this point, it would be a bigger surprise if he did not decide to make another bid for the presidency. But that entire speech last night was filled with similar grievances. It was was, uh, entirely backward-looking as opposed to forward-looking. So that is the question here. What is his message if he runs again? And are Republican voters open to a third run? The ones I've been talking to here, even the ones who love Donald Trump, and there are many of them, they're still open to considering a wider field. So that, of course, is his challenge, but made very clear that he uh, is looking forward to this, and he said, get ready. So the timing probably is the end of this month. Jeff Selney on the campaign trail for us. Jeff, eat your Wheaties. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Now to CNN exclusive reporting, uh, 
involving a potential Trump run, as Jeff was just talking about. The Justice Department is said to be considering whether it will need to appoint a special counsel to oversee major federal investigations involving the former president if he decides to run again in 2024. Paula Reed is live in Washington with this. This is this is fascinating and it could happen soon if Trump runs. Oh, good morning. Well, Poppy, traditionally in the weeks leading up to an election, the Justice Department does not take any overt action in cases that could have political consequences. Though over the past several weeks behind the scenes, the Biden Justice Department has been quietly planning how to best handle several of their most politically charged cases. And sources tell CNN that justice officials have even discussed whether they should appoint a special counsel to oversee the investigations into former President Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election and his alleged mishandling of national security documents kept at his Mar-a-Lago home. And officials have debated whether doing so could potentially insulate the Justice Department from accusations that the Biden administration is targeting his chief political rival, especially as Trump inches closer to a potential 2024 run. But a special counsel would ultimately still report to the attorney general. And as we saw with the Mueller probe into Trump-Russia connections in 2016, special counsels are certainly not immune from political attacks. So even though we're in the so-called quiet period at the Justice Department, they're still staffing up their investigations with experienced prosecutors. They're using aggressive grand jury Mm -hmm. subpoenas and even secret court battles to compel testimony from witnesses in both Trump probes. I mean, this is fascinating, right? And you're so right, because uh, even though they were special counsel, Mueller, the Durham investigation, there were so many accusations from, you know, people in both parties about being political. If this happens, so if Trump runs... How soon could we see a special counsel appointed? It's unclear at this point. Here's what we know from our reporting. After the midterms, the focus in the country will likely shift to the 2024 presidential elections. And sources familiar with the inner workings of the Justice Department say that could incentivize the Justice Department to make these crucial charging decisions as quickly as possible. Now, the final decision on whether to charge uh, the former president, whether to appoint a special counsel, it'll ultimately fall to the attorney general. And it's not just Trump that he will have to contend with after the election. The long-running investigation of Hunter Biden is nearing a conclusion. And there is also a final decision on potential charges against Congressman Matt Gates. The attorney general can be very busy after the election. Paula, really important reporting. Thanks for bringing it to us. We also have new reporting this morning on the Republican Party laying out a roadmap for what they say they will do if they win back control of the House next Tuesday. Minority leader Kevin McCarthy says there are several investigations that they want to pursue. So CNN's Manu Raju is live for CNN this morning on Capitol Hill. Manu, what should we be expecting if Republicans do take back the majority in the House? Yeah, even if they do, it'll be very difficult for them to get legislation onto Joe Biden's desk and acted into law because of the problems in the United States Senate, the challenges of getting legislation through, as well as a Democrat in the White House, which is why investigations will take center stage in a Republican-led House. Republicans are already indicating their desire to look into the COVID origins, what's happening along the U.S.-Mexico border, issues with the president's family, and as Kevin McCarthy said, also what happened in Afghanistan. If you were to be speaker and Republicans take control of these committees, what will the hearings be centered around? I've heard the following, the collapse in Kabul. I've heard the uh, origination of COVID. I've heard the investigation of American parents who showed up at teachers' meetings. Uh, Are those three? Those three um, among them, or would you add to that list? Those three are among them, but we'd also add any time you're using federal money. There needs to be a check and balance. 
Now, today we are going to get some sense of where Republicans on the Judiciary Committee in the House plan to go if they do take back the majority. They do plan to release a 1,000-page report alleging political interference at the Biden Justice Department. Democrats say this is all rehashed conspiracy theories, ignoring what happened with Donald Trump. But they will have the subpoena power, Republicans, if they take the majority, Kate. Well, and I noticed Kevin McCarthy did not mention Hunter Biden, but that is something that the White House has been bracing for. Is that something we should also be expecting? Yeah, no question about it. This is going to be a center part of an investigation by the House Oversight Committee. In particular, James Comer, who leads that committee, plans to, the day after the midterms, if they take the majority, send a letter to the Treasury Department asking for records dealing with so-called suspicious bank activity reports uh, that Hunter Biden and the other Biden family members were allegedly involved with. It's important to note that millions of those transactions and those reports are filed every year, but very few lead to law enforcement activities. But both... Uh, Comer and Jim Jordan plan to have a press conference in the days after the midterms detailing everything that they have found out so far about Hunter Biden. And this is what Comer told our colleague Melanie Zanona. He said, we're going to lay out what we have thus far on Hunter Biden and the crimes we believe he has committed. And then we're going to be very clear and say what we are investigating and who we're going to ask to meet with us for transcribed interviews. And we're going to show different areas that we're looking into. And Republicans are telling me that they plan to build this through the case, this case through 2020 into 2024, into the presidential election season. So expect a lot of this if Republicans do, in fact, win on Tuesday. Yeah, a pretty clear motivation there. And the White House has already assembled a legal team basically bracing for these investigations. Manu, thank you. Thank you. All right, thanks, Manu. So let's talk about the polls that will close, yes, Tuesday night. But it's possible we're not going to know a lot then, right? We're not going to know which party will control the House and the Senate for days or maybe even weeks. That could happen. We want you to understand why in the days leading up to the election. Okay, CNN political director David Chalian is here. David, this is, you're so good at this, and it's so important for people to understand that patience, as my mother taught me, patience is a virtue. <laughs> my mother taught me the same thing, Bobby, <laughs> yes. We, everyone is going to need to pack their patience on Tuesday night. We'll get results. This is a blank map right now. These are the 35 uh, Senate elections. So for battle control of the United States Senate, this will start filling in red and blue uh, Tuesday night as the votes come in. As you guys know, everyone should keep their eyes on these five states specifically. Nevada, Arizona, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia. How these states fall will determine which party controls the United States Senate. But as you know, we just may not know that result on Tuesday night. It's that, look, we just may not. It's probable that we won't know on Tuesday night. And we're, look, we're, we, I said at the beginning of the, the six o'clock show, we're going to be on television for hours and hours and hours and we're sleeping in the back. But why, why is that? It's because of counting? Is it because it's so slow, a, a myriad of things? Yeah. So, Don, I think a good example here is to think about Pennsylvania. You guys were talking about this with Frank Luntz a little earlier. So Fetterman versus Oz, again, this is blank because this is a live vote board. This is what will start populating with vote on Tuesday night. But what we will see on Tuesday night is that this is going to be a lot of red first. Why? Because in Pennsylvania, the elections officials are not even allowed to open up process and begin counting all the absentee mail vote until the polls open on Tuesday. That's not true in every state, but a state like Pennsylvania, which could prove critical, as you know, uh, that means the processing doesn't even begin until Tuesday morning. It's gonna take a while. We know Republicans tend to show up in greater numbers 
on election day in person. Democrats tend to show up in greater numbers in the pre-election vote, that absentee by mail or in-person vote. So if they're counting the election day vote first, which we expect that they will in Pennsylvania, this is going to be uh, very favorable to Republicans initially. And then as that absentee vote, which we still think it's not the height of the pandemic like 2020, but it's going to be substantial, that'll start to fill in with the Democratic vote. Right. And expectation setting is everything here because you saw how the former president tried to weaponize that very mechanism right there tried. in 2020. He did. <laughs> right? He tried. Did. It wasn't ultimately successful, yeah, but right maybe for his supporters. Yeah. David, thank you. Sure. We'll have you back very soon. No all right. Problem. Join all of us for special election night coverage <laughs> starting Tuesday, 4 p.m. Eastern time right here. And this morning, man, we have been talking about this is a big talker today it has been all week brooklyn net yep. star carrie irving is apologizing for tweeting about a documentary with anti-semitic conspiracy theories the doc blames the jewish people for the slave trade denies the holocaust and claims black people are the quote real children of israel and it comes just a few hours after the nets announced that he is now suspended for five games without pay for originally defending his actions Let's bring in now CNN's Brent Gengrass uh, with the very latest on this. So yesterday, the big question was, wait, he said he's going to do $500,000 and all this stuff, but no apology. Yeah, no apology. He had multiple chances to apologize, right? And he wouldn't, didn't, until last night. The NBA All-Star issuing a statement, and in it, the first time he says the words, I'm sorry, but an apology that's still not totally clear and some argue doesn't go far enough. For now, what is clear, one of the best players in the league sidelined after a week of this brewing controversy. You guys are asking me respectfully to speak on something that was a documentary that I had nothing to do with. I didn't make it. Kyrie Irving suspended by the Brooklyn Nets for at least five games without pay for defending his decision to tweet a link to a film criticized as anti-Semitic. The seven-time NBA All-Star took to Instagram Thursday night issuing this apology. To all Jewish families and communities that are hurt and affected from my post, I am deeply sorry to have caused you pain, and I apologize. It comes after the Nets condemned Irving's actions, calling him unfit to be a part of the team. Irving had refused to say he has no anti-Semitic beliefs. I didn't mean to cause any harm. I'm not the one that made the documentary. I cannot be anti-Semitic if I know where I come from. In a statement, the Nets noting Irving had previous chances but failed to clarify his beliefs. Days before, Irving and the Nets agreed to each donate half a million dollars to anti-hate groups. But in a tweet before Irving's apology, the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League said they, quote, cannot in good conscience accept Irving's donation. Following immense backlash, Irving followed up with this. I had no intentions to disrespect any Jewish cultural history regarding the Holocaust or perpetuate any hate. I am learning from this unfortunate event and hope we can find understanding between us all. Look, we know Irving is a polarizing player. He sat out most of last year, if you remember, for refusing to get the COVID-19 vaccine. But in this latest controversy, the NBA, the Nets organization also getting heat from fans, from former players, guys, for, for really this entire situation. Of course, we saw Reggie Miller, we saw Shaquille O'Neal, uh, Charles Barkley talking out about it as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. Brent, thank you. All right. Very, very much. Well, joining us now to discuss CNN contributor and legendary sportscaster Bob Costas. Bob, good morning to you. This is yeah. a real conundrum. Remember when we talked about Kyrie Irving during the whole vaccine incident yeah. during COVID? He was allowed to, in some ways, skirt that. This is another issue. Is he going to be allowed? I know that they suspended him now, but everyone well, is saying it's a five-game. What took so long? 
Well, yeah. At first, when they said we're going to have him donate $500,000 and the team will donate $500,000 to the ADL, it almost seemed like they were sharing responsibility. Mm -hmm. And no one called Kyrie out, including the NBA and Commissioner Adam Silver. No one called him out by name until yesterday. And then they became firmer in their response, partly because he stood in front of the press, the basketball press, following a Nets game and made a further fool of himself. Uh, as Jerry Brewer of the Washington Post, a very good columnist, says this morning, he is both delusional and defiant. Uh, he thinks he's the smartest man in the room. He is anything but that. There have always been whack jobs and dopes in sports, but uh -huh. they didn't have social media to put it on display whenever the impulse occurs to them. He also is powerful not only for being, you know, one of the most famous basketball players out there. He's a vice president still, I, I believe, on the executive committee of the Players Union. And, and you've got Joe Sy. Let's not forget the ownership of the team mm -hmm. could have come out hard at the beginning here mm -hmm. and instead issued a pretty passive statement saying, I'm disappointed, I want to sit down with I want to sit down with him. Except the, the present statement, or the more recent statement now is, he is unfit. But five, that was five days later. Yes, but they've now said he is unfit to be part of the Nets. And this five-game suspension is not limited to five games. It's at least five games. Mm -hmm. And until he shows by some objective criteria that he has learned his lesson and he won't be uh, more than a distraction, uh, a disgrace to their organization, until he shows that, he won't be back. Now, this is the last year of his contract. He's a very good player, but his trade value has been diminished. Is he more trouble than he's worth? He, well, he, he's been on three different teams. He's excelled for all three of them, the Cavs, the Celtics, and the Nets, but he had problems with all three of them. So even as a free agent at age 30 or 31, whatever it is next year, his value has been diminished. Well, and I wouldn't say that the NBA has the highest moral standard when it comes to violations from their players. But what stood out to me was that it took so long for them to take this action. And it was ultimately because of that press conference yesterday. You saw the soundbite there. The question he was asked was really simple. Do you have anti-Semitic beliefs? Right. That's when he offered that answer talking about, yeah. you know, basically saying he accepts all walks of life yeah. and what whatnot. It's a, it's a yes or no question, really. Sort of a ridiculous word salad. And this whole thing about, I didn't write it. Well, if you or I, or any of us, provided a link to the protocols of the elders of Zion or to Mein Kampf and then said, oh, I didn't write it. I, I'm just hoping, hoping to illuminate something. Yeah. Shut this the is, hell up. Bob, this is the same dilemma that we've been dealing with over the past few years since uh, the former president became an imprimatur for bigots and racists, mm -hmm. is that people don't even realize that they are racist, right? And perhaps Kyrie Irving in his, as you said, you know, making a, a paraphrase here, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that he said something silly and didn't realize his own more, more than silly. Okay, so perhaps he doesn't understand his own ignorance and he doesn't understand well, that he is anti-Semitic. So my yeah. question is, if those are indeed his beliefs, I'm not saying they're right. Mm -hmm. I don't believe it's right, obviously. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't, instead of forcing him to apologize, perhaps they should be dealing with the fact that he is what he is and whether or not the team and the NBA wants to accept that. Well, they can offer him counseling of some kind. They can. But do you understand my point? Yeah, I do understand. Instead of saying, hey, apologize for something, he goes, well, I don't believe that. Perhaps I, he just doesn't do understand your point. You know, he was also a flat earther. Right. And, and there you go. There you go. You know, and then and then there's this. Right. And he's been a problem on on other teams. And he may be, despite his excellence on the court, more trouble than his worth. You know what is also interesting here? 
there are a number, the league itself has bent over backwards, and, and mostly this has been an admirable thing, to acknowledge the concerns of many of its players about social justice. Mm -hmm. Many of those players who are outspoken about certain issues right. are conspicuously quiet when it comes to the NBA in China. And very yep. few of them, okay. and we know the prominent names, have said anything about right. Kyrie Irving, at least as we speak. Uh, that, I mean, that's a, fa that's a really important point. Where are the other voices in this? You know, I think all of us remember and think about Adam Silver's leadership. We think about that is very quick, very deliberate decision he made on Donald Sterling. Mm -hmm. Okay, what do you think? And he, and he put out this very strong statement yesterday. Yeah. What do you think the NBA does? It's easier, not easy, but easier to discipline an owner. They did the same thing with the owner of the Phoenix Suns recently. He was forced to divest himself of the team. The player, a player is defended by the Players Association, no matter how heinous the uh, behavior may be. The Players Association has some obligation to defend that person or at least try to mitigate the punishment against them. So Silver has to take that into account. But I think the public outcry here uh, and the overwhelming consensus among decent, sensible people will force the NBA uh, to be more forceful than they so far have been. You're very articulate at 7 in the morning. Let me tell you something. He's the always last, articulate. The last time I was up this early, I had a paper route. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, is, this is not my preferred this time of day. This makes us feel very lucky the, that you said yes. The last time I was up this early, I hadn't done my homework, and I was trying to get it done before 8th grade. Well, you know? that was true of me in college, too. Um, the all-nighter. We'll bring you back Bob. in the 6 o'clock hour next time. Thank well, that'll you, be great. <laughs> always good to see you, Bob. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Congrats on the new show. Good Thank luck. You. Thank Thanks. you very much. All right. Ahead, we have more coverage of the midterm elections, which are just days away. We are going to head to North Carolina. There is a Senate race there that maybe no one's paying attention to, but it is critical for not just 2022, but also 2024. Democratic Senate candidate Sherry Beasley is going to join CNN This Morning Live. And we are diving into the movement of self-proclaimed poll watchers who are driven by election lies and baseless claims of fraud. So what are they training you to do then when you're Observe. watching? But what are you looking for exactly? Observing. We're looking for uh, oddball stuff, I guess. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. If I lived in Pennsylvania, I would have already cast my vote for John Fetterman for many reasons. If I was in North Carolina, as you mentioned, Sister Beasley there. The battleground state of North Carolina has not elected a Democrat to the U.S. Senate in more than a decade, but it has now quietly become one of the closest Senate races in the country this cycle. So why is it being called a sleeper race? Let's ask Sherry Beasley, the former Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, who is now the Democratic Senate candidate. She is running against Republican Congressman Ted Budd. Good morning. Good morning. And, of course, we just heard from Oprah. You've got her endorsement. But one big question that I have heard from a lot of Democrats is, given the fact that the race is this close and there has not been a Senate Democrat from your state in so many years, your party is not spending that big and putting that much money behind you. And I wonder why you think that is and if it's ultimately going to be a mistake. 
You know, I'm very excited about how well we're doing in this race. There is a lot of enthusiasm uh, for my candidacy. We're traveling all across our state with 100 counties and really meeting folks and talking about the things that matter most to folks here in North Carolina. Uh, so I'm really, I'm just really pleased. Uh, we are doing very well. And Ted Budd and his National Republican allies know that. That's why they're spending millions of dollars to distort my judicial record. I've been a judge for over two decades and served as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. I've had two successful uh, statewide contested races here in the state. And so we're feeling really good about where we are. We're meeting voters in backyards and barbershops and community centers, and, and good things are happening here with this race. Yeah, I know you've been campaigning all over the state. You've been in the suburbs lately. But Ted Budd has gotten almost double from Mitch McConnell's super PAC what you have gotten from Schumer's PAC. And I wonder why Democrats aren't putting more money into your race and why you're not seeing people like former President Obama come and campaign with you as he's going to other states to help Democrats that they believe can win on Tuesday. You know, I think it just speaks volumes about how well we're doing in this race. I mean, the fact that Republicans have to spend so much money and we're still extremely competitive in this race. Uh, I, I, I'm just really excited about where we are. There's a lot of enthusiasm and folks across this country know what North Carolina means to this country, what it means for our democracy, that we have to win this, that there are people in this state who are just sick of the pettiness of partisan politics. They really want to know that um, as a senator, I'm going to fight hard for the issues that people here care about. Uh, folks are feeling everything from pain at the pump to the cost mm -hmm. of prescription drugs and everything in between. Yeah. And in the greatest country in the world, folks should not have to be worried about buying groceries or school supplies or high-priced medications. My opponent's been in Congress for six years. He's had every opportunity to fight for North Carolina, and he's failed to do so. Mm -hmm. So this is your closing message. It's the economy and it's, it's prices. And I thought it was interesting. A few days ago, you told NPR, people want to know what I'm going to do when I get to the Senate to bring prices down. So can you just lay out for our viewers... What are you actually going to do? I know you supported the Inflation Reduction Act, but that is not in the near term something that brings prices down. Well, I, you know, there are a couple things. Um, we pay more in this country for prescription drugs than any other country in the world. And Congress can fix that. We also know that corporations are seeing 70-year record profits and using the cover of inflation to jack up prices on things that we need. Congress can fix that. And Ted Budd has been in Congress for six years. Rather than fixing it, he's been helping it. Uh, he's taking thousands of dollars from Big Pharma and voting against lowering the cost of prescription drugs, taking thousands of dollars from Big Oil while voting okay. against lowering the cost of, of, of prescription drugs and big oil. So we can do better than that. I'd ask for I, your viewers to please go to SherryBeza.com for more information. I, I would just say that both the Commerce Secretary and the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen and Gina Raimondo, said in the last few months that actually what has been deemed by a lot of Democrats as price gouging or corporate greed has not been the main driver of inflation. Well, there are lots of drivers. I mean, and we know that the supply chain issue is huge. We haven't had another time in our country's history where we shut down the economy during the pandemic. It's taking some time to get back from that. Um, and, and Congress really can help this country and people here in North Carolina get through this crisis. And, I, and, and that's exactly what I'm going to be fighting for. I want to ask you about, listen, Republicans are running on crime largely, the economy, uh, inflation and crime. You mentioned, you said, look, I'm, I'm a judge, right? Uh, and you talked about what you have done uh, when it comes to criminal justice. There were this whole idea and messaging around defund the police. The police have now endorsed your opponent. You are not, you don't support defund the police. I'm wondering, though, if that messaging, you believe, 
has hurt you. What do you say about the whole defund the police uh, campaign and slogan uh, and, and messaging around it? You know, I have served as a judge for over two decades and as chief justice. Uh, I have worked closely with law enforcement officers to keep our community safe, held violent offenders accountable, and created the first human trafficking court uh, in North Carolina. And I know that we must fund police officers to make sure that we keep in our communities and themselves safe. And we also need to invest in community-based violence intervention programs to stop the cycle of violence. Congressman Butt has said, an opportunity to fund police on four separate occasions and failed to do so. He voted against it, and he voted but is against it hurting addressing you? Without, our opioid crisis the here. But is that hurting you? Do you think it's hurting? You know, we're doing well in this race. Okay. We're doing so well in this race. Folks know my record. I've, I'm, I mean, I've been an elected official here for over a decade. And, and, and so I'm really excited about where... I mean, folks are going to say what they're going to say because they're working so hard in this race. Ted Budd is so worried about attacking my own record because he can't defend his own. Uh, and we are doing very well in this race. I'm excited about getting around, meeting people. People want a senator who's going to fight for North Carolina, who's going to serve with integrity, put people first, and not put corporations and special interests before us. But one last thing, and this is not me, so I'm not being disrespectful, but Sister Beasley, we didn't talk about that. Oprah said, I would be, I support Sister Beasley. <laughs> I mean, that has to, you think that's, I, look, I'm, who doesn't want an Oprah endorsement? But what do you make of that? Well, Oprah rocks, right? Um, <laughs> we have four days until election. We're going to keep fighting hard and talking with folks here in North Carolina. Uh, and people are struggling. This is serious business. We got to get this right. And I'm asking people to support me. Sherry Beasley, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We'll be watching your race closely on Tuesday. Yeah, thank you. That's very thank good because, it's, as you said, it's not really getting the attention that the other races are getting. I'm yeah. telling you, I've talked to Democrats. They are very frustrated that national Democrats are not putting more money behind her because they basically think that they're ignoring the grassroots efforts. That's really how she's been running her race. And they think she's being ignored. They think they're cl they're closer there than they are in other states. Yeah. And they think it's yeah. going to potentially be a mistake by Tuesday. And it would be history-making, right? She'd be the first black senator from the state. And she had said that, you know, if she wins, it would just be 57 years since her mom got the right to vote. That's yeah. what you get here on CNN this morning. I thought it was that a was really great. good conversation. I really enjoyed speaking with her. Yeah, yeah. too. All right, new this morning, provocation from North Korea causing the South to scramble fighter jets. We'll tell you why. And election deniers turned self-proclaimed poll watchers, the lies and the conspiracies driving this very troubling movement. Are you sure <clears throat> about that? Yeah, look it up. Sure. Can we Google Actually, it? Uh, Google, I wouldn't. Yeah, you Wait until you see this next piece. They are inspired by lies, baseless claims of election fraud now just days before the midterms. New concerns about self-proclaimed poll watchers and fears they could intimidate voters. Some already are. Our Ellie Reed reports. So what are they training you to do then when you're Observe. watching? But what are you looking for exactly? Observing. We're looking for uh, oddball stuff, I guess. John P. Child is training to be a poll watcher, part of a wave of organizing among people who believe the 2020 election was stolen. All over the country, we're deploying people to be poll watchers to watch everything that's happening. Generally, it's a good thing when more people get engaged in their local government. But some of this engagement is motivated by lies. Especially the mail-in ballots. That's, that's where the big issue was in 2020. 
because in Pennsylvania there were 1.8 million mail-in ballots went out, two and a half million come back. There's a, uh, hello, a question maybe? Are you sure about that? <clears throat> yeah, look it up, sure. Can we Google Absolutely. it? Uh, Google, I wouldn't, yeah. You, you don't try, It's what? everywhere. Okay, so the first <clears throat> result is from the AP. There you go. AP's assessment, false. In the weeks before the November 2020 election, more than three million Pennsylvania voters requested vote by mail. We met John at a poll watcher training put on by Delaware County Conservatives. The organizer wouldn't let us in, but John agreed to an interview, and he brought the training materials. My head was spinning at the end of it. I, it's a rabbit hole. Well, so tell me about... I liked it better when I didn't know any of this, honestly. Tell me about what was so mind-blowing in this. Well, the whole chain of custody thing of V-drives, that was astounding. The documents go through many technical and procedural details of how votes are counted after polls close and question whether each is an avenue for cheating. It casts an enormous cloud of suspicion over the vote without any proof. And we're going to prove it to you. It's part of a real nationwide movement led by MAGA influencers who circulate false information of election fraud in podcasts and in tours across the country. And notice how mail-in votes will occasionally switch with in-person votes. They've inspired citizens to get involved at the local level, to hunt for proof of fraud, and to prevent it from happening on election day. They have not found proof or fraudsters. What election officials are worried about is that these efforts could intimidate voters. You have to get into the ring. You cannot fight this on social media. I have watched like many of these different presentations, Steve Bannon, like this guy calls himself the professor, presenting this evidence. But none of that stuff adds up to the millions of votes between Trump and so Biden. So you're, you're not convinced. And we're, we're a bunch convinced. of crazy people then. I didn't say you're crazy. Well, I'll sure you are. I didn't it's, say you're no, crazy. No, we're deluded. We're misled. Maybe I misled. I don't see it that way. But anyway, I know you don't see that. I know you don't okay. see it that way. But I guess one reason why it's important to talk to people like you is to see if that there's a place where there could be reconciliation. Yeah, go back to same-day voting and paper ballots. We get these comments. People come to us at county council meetings and play, we need to use paper ballots. And I'm like, we do use paper ballots. Do, do you understand? We use paper ballots. Dealing with election misinformation has become a big part of the county council's job. So the votes are cast on a paper ballot and then they are scanned and the results of that vote are tabulated on the scanner. But you're not really voting on the scanner, you're voting on the paper ballot, and that paper ballot is maintained as a record of the voters' vote. Delaware County in Pennsylvania has fought 15 election lawsuits against 2020 election deniers, and won all of them. But it costs more than $250,000, and officials are worried about how much more time and money this movement will drain with the midterms. Mail-in ballots are susceptible to fraud. And At the bi-weekly county council meeting, most of the public comments falsely suggested that something sketchy is going on with elections. Somebody can stand up at one of our meetings and they get three minutes to say whatever they want, spout off lies about the election. There's not much I can do about it. We're talking about electronic digital devices. Every one of those is providing a gateway for outside intervention or in-house intervention, as it may be. I guess I would just say to them, do you really think all of us want to go to jail? Do you really think everybody in government and everybody who works in our election department wants to go to jail? Because we'd be doing something really illegal. And I'll tell you something, if, if I thought somebody was doing that, they should go to jail. There has to be some degree of trust in those who serve the public that they are doing something for the public good. And that we have lost. 
I don't know our way out, but um, this is the world we live in right now. There's some kind of cognitive dissonance out there where people are saying, well, we've got to save democracy by overturning an election. That's more of a dictatorship than it is a democracy. I'm open to put my eyes on things. Will you accept the results of these midterms elections, even if it's not the results you want? Accept it? Well, yeah. what, am I going to start a revolt? No. Accept it? Yeah. Have to accept it. What else, what else are you going to do? Oh, my goodness. We were just saying that, Ellie, you have a way of reporting these stories that really helps us understand it, Um, not judge people, but ask them why. Like you said, Don, be curious, not judgmental. But it's so frustrating. It is so so frustrating frustrating when you you hear people, their facts are wrong. Nothing, there's been no proof at all, and yet these people have been co-opted, they believe what they're, they believe in what's happening, and they've been giving false information <laughs> they, about all this. They are. None of it but is did, right. did you get the sense, that council member said, Ellie, at the end of the piece, I don't know the way out, but there has to be a way out. Speaking with these people, being with them, reporting, did you feel like their minds can be changed back to truth? Gosh, I'm not sure. I Actually, John was really nice. We went round and round with me fact-checking his stuff. I'd send him emails like this long. He was very gracious in accepting that. But the overall sense that something has gone wrong and sort of that the government is kind of plotting against them, tricking them, fooling people for years with voting machines, that's not true. But they really believe that. And I'm not sure how to pierce that. It's like a firmly held belief that people have. Even if you present them with all the evidence that it's not true, they'll still say it's true anyway because they feel internally that they believe it. But it doesn't help that you have leaders, even the you know, biggest leader in the, in the world who are feeding them misinformation and who keep pounding at home every single day. They're being lied to as constituents. They are being, and they are voting and acting against their own interests. I, I don't know what the answer is, but it is not coddling. I don't know if it's tough love. I have no idea. I mean, that's a lot to ask you what the answer is, but I, your report is just startling. There's a whole ecosystem on these alternate social media sites where they make documentaries um, that are very convincing. They're very convincing. And everyone I talk to, they don't watch CNN. A lot of them said they don't watch Fox News anymore. I mean, we got booed at the meeting, mildly, when we asked to watch it. Um, So there's nothing coming in from the outside to pierce that bubble. And when I was talking with John sometimes, you know, I tried to push a little further, like, who do you think is, is doing this? Like, who is plotting? And he didn't really have an answer for me. And I think that's indicative of there's just no one's coming in to question this. Yeah. It's like a kid, there's a boogeyman under the bed, mm. you know? Thank you. Bring us more, okay? Great reporting. Keep going. Thank Great you. reporting. Up next, we had to, we head, I should say, to the battleground state of Arizona. The Senate candidate's final message to voters in the last few days of the election season. Also this morning, Twitter staffers are bracing to potentially be fired by email as Elon Musk's memo about the future of the company was out last night and said, check your email. <laughs> I said election season. Is, is it like, we're like in perpetual election. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Arizona's Senate race has tied considerably in the campaign's final days. Republican Blake Masters, his chances of defeating Democratic incumbent Mark Kelly, have received a boost 
when a third-party candidate dropped out of the race, putting his support behind Masters. The question is, is it a difference maker? Let's go live to CNN's Kyung Law, who is on the campaign trail in Scottsdale. Kyung, that is the question. Does this make a difference? A a minuscule difference, Caitlin. I'm hearing from both campaigns that they don't necessarily see this as a very big factor, that the person who dropped out really very low single digits, but everything in this race matters. That's how close it is. The campaigns tell me that with control of the U.S. Senate still running through the state of Arizona, it is going to be a nail-biter till the very end. Thank you for being the tip of the spear. Let's go manufacture this red wave. A Republican resurgence pledges Senate nominee Blake Masters in the final stretch, closing with this message. They've made life in America, life in Arizona, more dangerous, less affordable. That resonates with Evelyn Tinsley, small business owner, mom of four. A lot of things have changed since Biden has gone into office. Food has definitely gone up. It's crazy, especially with how many people we have. What Tinsley does not worry about is Donald Trump. Blake Masters urging Masters to lie about the election, like Republican gubernatorial nominee Carrie Lake. Look at Carrie. Carrie's winning with very little money. And if they say, how is your family? She says the election was rigged and stolen. You'll lose if you go soft. You're going to lose that. I'm not going soft. What do you say to moderates who are concerned about the economy, but they're also concerned about what you're saying about the 2020 election, the election denials? I don't think they're concerned about what I say about 2020. I think the most important things by far right now to to voters are inflation, crime, and the border. Democratic Senator Mark Kelly will test that belief with a message of his own. Labeling masters as extreme on abortion, social security, and democracy. Blake Masters has some beliefs that are just dangerous for Arizonans. You know, somebody who thinks they know better than everyone about everything, letting them make decisions for you is dangerous. I am a registered Republican. Election deniers at the top of the Republican ticket is why Keith Greenberg is at the Democrats' rally. Republicans have some some momentum, but I think Arizonans are smart enough to know how to vote properly and protect democracy. The husband of former Arizona Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, Kelly is leaning into his experience as an astronaut and his service as a Navy combat veteran. He is actually a top gun. Propelled in these last hours by a Democratic powerhouse. And if you've got election deniers serving as your governor, as your senator, as your secretary of state, as your attorney general, then democracy as we know it may not survive in Arizona. That's not an exaggeration. That is a fact. And the national forces are continuing to come into Arizona this weekend. Dr. Jill Biden will be in Arizona supporting Senator Kelly. Notably, though, not the president. Yeah. Caitlin. I'm sure Blake Masters' campaign will still point out there is a Biden in the state for him. Kyung Law, thank you for that report. All right, so we are waiting just a few minutes away from a, a big economic report, the last major report on the U.S. economy before the midterm election. What is the White House anticipating? That's next. Morning, everybody. 
John Lemon here alongside Poppy Harlow, Caitlin Collins. It is Friday, November 4th, just a few days before Election Day. We've got a lot to get to this morning, including a critical October jobs report. It's going to be released in about a half an hour. The White House is hoping for something to tout to voters ahead of the critical midterm. Also new this morning, provocation from North Korea that causes the South to scramble fighter jets. We'll take you live to South Korea straight ahead. And my favorite story of the morning, when LSU and Alabama predictably tangle tomorrow in Death Valley, there is going to be a lot on the line, including mine and Don's relationship. (laughs) Anchor bragging, who gets to eat crow, a lot ahead first. Just a short time from now, the October October jobs report is coming out, and the White House is hoping for a Goldilocks number. Not too big, not too small, something Mm. just right, just four days before the midterms. MJ Lee, live for us this morning at the White House. MJ, good morning to you. I hope that uh, irritating lawnmower is not with you this morning. Hello. It is actually behind me, but um, I guess you can't hear it this morning as well. <laughs> yeah. Good morning. Hey, so, yeah, what we're uh, expecting this morning, you know, typically on a normal jobs day, the White House is going to look for a jobs number that is big. That makes sense. More jobs is good news. But we are not in normal times. Inflation is incredibly high. So what White House officials are looking for is a number somewhere between 150 to 300,000 jobs added last month. And it, and it is this sort of Goldilocks number in that they don't want it to be too low. They still want to see jobs growth, but they definitely don't want that number to be too high because they know that the economy has to cool in order for these high prices to come down and in order for the Fed to stop these very aggressive rate hikes. So, yeah, we are in a world right now where the White House is sort of actively hoping for a moderate jobs number. They're hoping that because they're, they're wondering if this jobs report can make a difference for Democrats before Election Day. And we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. And, and we are just four days out. Right. And the concern for Democrats would be that uh, the economic outlook is pretty baked in at this point. You know, White House officials have been saying you look at jobs growth, you look at the quarterly uh, economic growth. And we are not in a recession. They say we are not even in a pre-recession Uh, But that is not how voters feel. You know, just the CNN poll that came out this week uh, showed that 75 percent of Americans uh, feel like the economy is in a recession. So it almost doesn't matter, guys, what the numbers say, what the reports say, what the data show. Uh, This is what the voters are feeling right now. Pretty pessimistic, uh, a lot of them, about the economy. So that is sort of the political reality that Democrats confront heading into next week, uh, regardless of what the jobs report might say at 830 today. MJ Lee, every morning fighting a lawnmower at the White House. Thank you, MJ. Appreciate that. You're going to do something about that for MJ. All right. It is Friday and usually people are looking forward to today, but not employees at Twitter. Look, the social media giant is sending them a warning. Check your email before noon. You may be fired. Within hours, Elon Musk's company will begin mass layoffs. The cuts come a little more than a week after he took over Twitter. Now employees there are suing Uh, They are trying to get class action status in a lawsuit in San Francisco because they say they weren't given enough notice under U.S. federal law uh, that has to warn them before they lose their jobs. Also this morning, the tracks of about 180 North Korean military aircrafts have been detected flying near South Korea's border. CNN's Will Ripley is joining us live from Seoul, South Korea with the latest. Will, how is South Korea responding to this? 
It has really been a fast-moving week here, and we are really seeing the contrast between the current presidential administration of President Yoon, who is all about showing force to North Korean provocations, versus President Moon, who is trying and failing to make peace for so many years. So after North Korea decided to send 180 warplanes near the border with South Korea in response to Operation Vigilant Storm, which has 240 U.S. and South Korean warplanes, along with thousands of troops from the U.S. and South Korea engaging in military drills that were extended until Saturday in response to North Korea's barrage of missile launches this week. Well, the, the, the planes flew right back from the south and the South Korean Air Force scrambled their own jets, uh, sending them close to the border uh, in a show of force and a real sign of the escalating tensions in this part of the world. The big question now, though, is what happens next? The, uh, the military drills are, as I said, uh, expected to uh, continue until Saturday. North Korea has vowed serious repercussions if those drills continue. Is this uh, sending of warplanes near the border going to be the end of it, Caitlin? Or can we expect to see perhaps the largest provocation in half a decade, which would be North Korea's seventh underground nuclear test? We've been expecting it for months. Uh, officials in the U.S., South Korea and Japan say all Kim Jong-un has to do is push the button and he could uh, potentially push this region back to the brink of a nuclear crisis in addition to everything else happening around the world, particularly Russia and Ukraine. Caitlin. Yeah. And the White House is watching this incredibly closely. Will Ripley, thank you. With only four days left until Election Day, Oprah Winfrey, Oprah, making a major endorsement in a major state. She is endorsing Pennsylvania's Democratic Senate candidate John Fetterman, uh, not endorsing the Republican candidate, Mehmet Oz. There you see, remember them? She's the one who made him famous, made him a household name. You mentioned Pennsylvania. I have to see of this midterm campaign. Uh, I said it was up to the citizens of Pennsylvania. And of course, but I will tell you all this. If I lived in Pennsylvania, I would have already cast my vote for John Fetterman for many reasons. Many reasons. It's a big endorsement. Oz's spokesperson says that, quote, Dr. Oz loves Oprah and respects the fact that they have different politics. He goes on to emphasize one of his leading campaign messages is that, quote, we need more balance and less extremism in Washington. Yeah, so, so we're, it's really getting down to the wire. And this is a very important race. One race that is becoming more competitive than expected is the race for New York governor, right here in New York State where we are. Incumbent Democrat, Democratic governor, Kathy Hochul, holding a slight lead over Republican Lee Zeldin. Democratic star power joining Hochul on the campaign trail this week. Vice President Harris, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, lending their support to a get-out-the-vote rally. The former Secretary of State was on the program just yesterday speaking about this. New York's Governor Kathy Hochul joins us now live. She is the Democrat running for governor. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. We really appreciate you joining us this morning. Here's my question. Uh, listen, Good I've, been, morning. I've been covering and living in New York for quite a long time. It is surprising that the race is this close. Why is this race so close, Governor? Are you concerned? Well, we're focusing on getting out the vote. When Democrats turn out, we win. I'm at the Brooklyn subway stop, the Barclays Center, and there's a lot of energy. I took the subway over from Manhattan. So we, I think what's not being captured in the polls is that there really is finally energy on the ground. It doesn't manifest itself earlier, but it is all coming to bear. You only need to peak on Election Day. But I do think that there's anxiety out there. You know, you're talking about the economy a lot, and we understand that. We understand that. I think it's a combination of coming off a tough couple of years with the pandemic, people feeling anxious about the price of everything going up, all their groceries and their rent. And it's a frustrating time, and I understand that. But we want them to know that Democrats actually have real results. 
as opposed to just the Republican rhetoric. And that's really what our campaign is coming down to. Yeah, listen, it didn't, uh, I, I did not miss the fact that you just said that you took the, the subway over and that you're campaigning at a subway stop. And that is um, where we have been seeing a lot of crime, right, on the news. If you look at the issue of crime has been really front and center for voters. Uh, here in, in New York City, the people think that crime is number one, 28 percent. And this is according to a Quinnipiac poll. Inflation is 20 percent. The crime rate uh, has overall it is down. But there are issues when it comes to violent crimes. There are issues when it comes to murder. It is uh, they're down in some places in the city, up in many places in the city uh, and in the state as well. What is it? What are Democrats not getting about crime? Why are Republicans winning on this whole crime issue? That has been the thing that has fueled Lee Zeldin's campaign. Because they're being dishonest about it. They're not having a conversation about real solutions. What we have done is taken 8,000 illegal guns off the streets. We made sure that no 18-year-old can get their hands on an AR-15. We've made sure that our red flag laws are tough and there's background checks, whereas Lee Zeldin has opposed every part of that, even voting against the first significant gun safety legislation in three decades in Washington. He didn't even show up to help support our police officers with funding for them in Washington. So yeah. so they can say all they want, but there's the facts are on the other side. We've done a lot to get guns but off in the, the street. State, and I was just up. in the subway again with... Violent crime is up at 7.8 percent uh, in the state. I mean, it is down point, you know, a point from 20 and 20 and 21, but it is up 7.8 percent. That is concerning. And especially if you look in New York City and we look at the news and we see this, you know, randomly what is happening uh, in our subways and on our streets, people are really nervous about it. And I know you're saying they're being disingenuous about it, but that is a real, real factor, Governor. You can't deny that. No, I'm not denying that. I'm just saying the way the Republicans ad campaign is. And if, if they're not going to say if they're going to say they're tough on crime, but soft on guns, that doesn't add up. And I want the voters to know that. But we have leaned hard into working with Mayor Adams on getting more cops and cameras and care for people who are severely mentally ill who have been on the subway. So I was not talking about this in an election environment. We did this back in January and have a sustained approach to bring state resources to help local law enforcement, which is something I'm proud to do that hasn't happened before. The governor and the mayor of New York never cooperated in the way that we are now, and it's going to take some time, and I know the voters understand this, but nationwide, crime has been a problem. Our, better, our numbers are better in New York City. Violent crime is up, but we look at murders and shootings, and they're down about 30%, but that's not going to give anyone any comfort. It says we still have a problem. I understand that. Yeah. But let's talk about real answers and not just give everybody all these platitudes. Yeah. As someone who takes uh, my kids every day on the subway in New York City, very close to where you are this morning. Um, look, yeah, uh, homicides are down, but rapes are up. Robberies are up. Felony assault is up. And you talked about uh, your, your opponent not having solutions. One thing that Lee Zeldin has said he would definitely do if he becomes governor is that he would, through an executive order, repeal immediately the bail reform law that was passed. You don't love that law the way it stands. You've wanted changes to it. Would you do the same as he is saying he would? Would you repeal it through executive order? Again, that, that is such a simplistic approach. It, it negates the fact that it's about how we support law enforcement. And he voted against, he wouldn't support funding for the police. I triple the <laughs> amount of money for law enforcement. We're supporting violence disruptor programs. He, to say that you're just going to change one part of the system 
it shows a naivete that it's not going to be a real solution. So we did make targeted changes to the bail laws, covering gun cases and repeat offenders. That has all just been in effect for a few months now because of what I was able to accomplish in the budget. I'm always willing to look at it again, but the data is not showing that that is the cause of this. Yeah. There are individual cases, but compared to pre-pandemic and when this was passed, I don't think there's a real disparity, but that doesn't matter. We're dealing with people's feelings here, and I understand that. I'm a mother. You're hardwired to care about your children and your family's safety, so voters need to know that we have a plan, we're working on this, and just putting up ads that say you have the answer when you really don't. When you don't think we should be getting guns off the streets, you want to give guns to every teacher, you want guns in the subways, that is just irrational to think that that's going to make people safer than I just think people need to know uh, really what's on the line here is someone who's been working in the trenches, rolling up her sleeves, getting the job done, and not just running around the state saying all you have to do is repeal, repeal a bail law and all the crime will disappear. I think people are smarter than that. Kayla, I know you want to get in. Let's just a point of clarification here. And this is according to CNN and, and other fact checks. There is no evidence to suggest that bail reform is a major factor. And, you know, if that changes, of course, we will... Um, tell you, but so far, there's no evidence linking bail reform to what has been taking place in some cities. Sorry. And Governor, I know you were on the campaign trail yesterday with Hillary Clinton, the vice president. Women have obviously been a big constituency here that you are seeking their votes. So is Lee Zeldin. When you talk to them, do they prioritize abortion or the economy and crime? There's not, women are, cannot be described as a monolithic group. We all have our particular issues, but overall, women do feel deeply troubled that someone running for governor, Lee Zeldin, is avowedly against their right to choose. His name is currently on legislation that says life begins at conception, opposes abortion for rape and incense, even when the life of a mother is at stake. That is his position. And he wants to say, well, nothing changed since the Dobbs decision in New York. I said, that's because I'm the governor and he's not. I understand the power of a governor. And there are many ways that he could subvert women's right to choose if he became the governor. But that's not the only issue. Mothers are concerned about education, how they're going to save up their kids' college, how they're going to pay for the tank of gas, how they're going to cover the cost of food on the table. So there are economic issues, and we're leaning hard into job creation. Lee Zeldin voted against the Inflation Reduction Act. He voted against the Infrastructure Act, which is bringing thousands and thousands of jobs to New York. I'm using money from that to pave potholes in his district, and he didn't even vote for it. So there's a lot of areas where more work could have been done. We just created bringing Micron because of the federal chips bill and the state green chips bill. We're now going to have semiconductor chips made in New York State, 50,000 jobs, and Lee Zeldin voted against it. You lift people up giving them good-paying jobs, investing in them, investing in their kids' education. And Lee Zeldin has opposed all that. That is a significant difference that's on the minds of a lot of women. Yeah, and women aren't a monolith when they vote. They, they have different interests, but it does make a difference, potentially what happens on Tuesday, what they are voting on. So. Yeah, Governor, before I let you go, listen, I have to, we've got to ask you about okay. Paul Pelosi and, and the House Speaker. Have you had a chance to reach out? What's your reaction to what happened? We have reached out. It is terrifying to think that there's such a vulnerability among elected officials and their family members. And every single elected official needs to call this out and condemn this violence and not to allow the spread of radical ideas that can be translated into violent acts against innocent people. And what concerns me is someone like Lee Zeldin, 
Yesterday, he was asked if he condemns these white supremacist groups that support him, and he refused to do that. If we don't have the kind of leadership that condemns this, calls it out, we're going to allow this to continue to fester and breed out there. And, nine, and what happened on January 6th, someone like Lee Zeldin, who absolutely supported the insurrection, voted against the seating of President Biden as our president. These are extreme views that lead to that kind of violence. And that's what we have to be concerned about, especially in places like New York. Yeah. Thank you, Governor. Really Thanks, appreciate Governor. it. Yeah. Thanks so much this morning. Listen, we want to tell you that we, uh, we have invited um, Lee Zeldin on the show. The invitation remains. We've done it a number of times. So we hope that he comes on before Election Day. And be sure to tune in next Tuesday for CNN's special election coverage. It all begins at 4 p.m. Eastern. And it goes all night and into the morning and into the next day. Up next, Chris Wallace will join us live as former President Trump is teasing another run, potentially. And a critical look under the hood of the American economy, the final jobs report before the midterm elections, minutes away. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Former President Trump is on the campaign trail. He hasn't announced that he's running in 2024 yet, but he's pretty much saying it out loud. I will very, very, very probably do it again, okay? Very, very, very probably. Get ready. That's all I'm telling you. Very soon. Get ready. Get ready. Joining us now is CNN anchor of Who is Talking to Chris Wallace. Chris Wallace, you heard President Trump there, former President Trump, saying, get ready. How imminent do you think an announcement from Trump is about running in 2024? Well, I think sooner rather than later. And I've got to say that I'm one of those people who had real doubts, Caitlin, as to whether or not he was going to run. Oh, but no. it sure seems that, you know, there's a rule in the theater when you're going to make your entrance, let him see you coming show up on the stage and then let, let them know that you've arrived. And uh, as the consummate showman, Donald Trump is doing all of that. And there's a second point, and that is that if Republicans have a good night or even a very good night, which it appears they're going to have on Tuesday night, I think he's going to want to take ownership of it. Yeah. And announcing, mm -hmm. let's say before Thanksgiving, it does two things. One, it says this Republican victory, assuming it is, is mine. And two, it helps... Uh, freeze the field, makes it harder for other people to get into the race. And it's interesting, you're already seeing some signs from Ron DeSantis's camp. Well, you know, and everybody had thought he was going to take on Trump mm -hmm. this uh, next two years. Now suddenly they're saying he's 44, he could run in 28, he could run in the 2030s. <laughs> so if Donald Trump actually gets in, I think it's going to, some of the people that have been talking a lot about getting in, I think it may Keep them out. I think the sense is yeah. it'll take 44? it'll take so one person to get in and then the rest so of them will get in. But one thing with Trump's announcement is he had been thinking about running, announcing it the day after the midterms. I think he'll wait a few more days after that, but he is expecting to. Can we on that point? Can we ask you? I was going to ask you uh, what Republican or Republicans do you think would have the guts to run against him? Well, we know Liz Cheney has the guts yes. to run against him. Who else? Uh, I, I certainly think Mike Pence is going to run mm. against him. Uh, I, I think it's a tough, tall order, because if you like uh, Donald Trump and you, you know, you like what the Trump-Pence administration did, it's awfully tough to see how Pence separates himself from Trump uh, in a way that's going to appeal to the Republican base. I will tell you, I was on uh, Bill Maher's talk show with Chris Christie, uh, the former governor of New Jersey, and he talks about running against Trump, and he's been quite 
quite uh, snippy, quite snarky about Trump. So maybe he gets in. There will be Republicans Hmm. who get in. But, uh, you know, you just look at the polls. uh, And as somebody who saw firsthand Donald Trump on the debate stage in the Republican primaries in 2015 and 16, he sucks up an awful lot of oxygen. Going to be very hard for any Republican to oppose him in the Republican primaries in 23 and 4. This is where we agree, because I, I felt the same as you. I wasn't so sure, Chris, that, that Donald Trump was going to run again. In fact, I thought the evidence was that he's not going to do it. He was just he wants to be the kingmaker instead of king. And I think a lot depends on what happens on Tuesday night. If Republicans do really well, as you said, he's going to want to take credit for it. And then he'll say, I'm running because and they will think his chances are, are good. But what if, you have to look at um, the recall lack of civility and not the politics have ever been that civil. But when you look at what is happening, what the former president does, what he says on social media, um, how div- divisive he is, are voters, do they want that again? Are they in for that ride? Again? Well, you know, it's interesting because you'd like to say no. You'd like to say that we still are a nation of civility, is still a nation of compassion uh, and good manners. But, you know, I, I think back, Don, to 2015 when Donald Trump uh, in Iowa uh, made some jokes about John McCain and said, yeah. you know, I like war heroes who haven't been caught. And an awful lot of us, myself included, thought that's it. He's never going to survive that. And as we saw, He was able to survive that and much worse. And what's been so fascinating about the reaction to the horrific attack on Paul Pelosi is the number of other Republicans who have leaned in on that and made jokes about it, whether it's Carrie Lake or Glenn Youngkin and on and on. Um, And it almost seems like to the Trump base, to the MAGA base, that kind of political incorrectness, that kind of uh, lack of civility, some could say even meanness, seems to be uh, a plus, not a minus. So I don't, I don't see any indication that for a certain element of American politics, that's going away anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they don't view it as meanness. They view it as him being a fighter. Yeah, but he was an unknown quantity then, so to speak, politically. Uh, now he is. And so we'll yeah. see. We don't we'll know what it would look like. Yeah. Thanks, Chris, Chris Wallace, thanks for joining us. Good to see you. My thanks pleasure. for waking up with us, Chris Wallace. <laughs> Who's talking to Chris Wallace yeah. early in the morning? <laughs> Who's talking We're to Chris Wallace Sundays on Monday. CNN? Make sure you tune in for that. Yep, 7 p.m. Eastern. All right, in moments, the last jobs report, the last big economic report that you're going to get before you cast your vote if you're voting on Election Day. That is coming up next. Dun, dun, dun. That was, uh, that was actually a very good conversation. All right, so the October jobs report just out. We're going to gather the numbers, make sense of them, bring them to you in just a minute. Let's get some context, though, with our whole team uh, who is here. Chief Business Correspondent Christine Romans is with us, Business Correspondent Rahel Solomon. So, Christine, this is the, we've been saying all morning, they want a Goldilocks. Yeah. You want a positive number, but not too much because we got to grapple with this inflation. So we have 261,000 net new jobs added in the period, which is a little, I think, a little hotter than people thought. I mean, in normal times, that would be, a lot of jobs created. 3.7% is the unemployment rate. So it went up a little bit, but still near that, you know, 50-year low. So this is one of those stories. I guess that you could say that is maybe a little Goldilocks, the unemployment rate getting a little bit hotter, which is what the Fed wants to see. 
we still had a lot of jobs created in the period. And I'm going to dig in here and find out where we added sure, those yeah. jobs. Yeah, we'll come back to Christine because okay. she's actually doing, yeah, the, yeah <laughs> trying to get the information uh, right now. Rahel, hello to you. Hi, guys. So, look, it's coming. Look, it's a very critical time politically yeah. and for the country because people are going to be deciding who their leaders are. And the White House, as you know, they are a little bit nervous about this. I think everyone is a little bit nervous. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a critical time politically. It's a critical time economically. So this is a number that we've all been watching to see. Are we going to start to see the labor market? Market cool off. And I would argue this is a sign of that, right? 261,000, uh, as Christine pointed out. We'll have to look at the revisions uh, that we got for the last few months. But to put that in perspective, that would be roughly the lightest number we've seen in quite some time, right? So we knew that this was coming as the Fed started raising rates in March and has continued to raise rates, of course, uh, since then as they make borrowing more expensive. So we all knew, Christine and I have talked about quite a bit that at some point the labor would slow. We've just been waiting to see when it would happen. And so what's the Federal Reserve's response to this, do you think? You know, I'd have to look at wages. I'd have to look at labor force participation. But this is a slowing, which the Fed wants to see. It wants to see a cool down, a moderation. It doesn't want to see uh, job growth plummet. So I would say that yeah. this is perhaps a step in the right direction, but also going to be looking at labor force participation. Sure. It's also going to be looking at wages for sure. There's an unemployment rate. You can see how much it's fallen since the really worst days of the pandemic. Um, one thing here, manufacturing jobs uh, added there, 32,000. That's Interesting, to, interesting um, to see here. And Rahel was talking about how it's a slowdown. Two hundred sixty-one thousand would be hot any other time. You know, any other time you'd be like, "That's so many jobs." But we've been on average about four hundred twenty thousand mm. jobs on average every month mm -hmm. this year. So this is below the year's pace. But this has been a so now we're talking about four million jobs have been created this year in the U.S. economy. That is way more than you normally see. Usually, you just have two million jobs yeah. in two or three million jobs a year. We've already really been far above is that. Is this Goldilocks? I don't know. I mean, it's so hard to say what's happening in the job market when you look under the hood because we have so many jobs that are still open. The Fed needs to see the job market cool down a little bit so it doesn't start to spin off other inflation and get inflation entrenched. Do you think it's Goldilocks? Goldilocks is not too fast, well, not too slow. You know, right? I'm trying to remember the op-ed that the president uh, wrote. I believe it was in the Wall Street Journal earlier this year where Goldilocks was sort of 150 to 200. Now, that's just sort of off the top of my head, but I believe... is what the White House had been Right, I believe for. that was the figure. So are we there yet? No. Are we sort of getting closer to the uh, 400,000 that we added earlier this year, uh, the 500,000 jobs that we added earlier this year in January? Yeah, we're moving in the right direction. Are we exactly there? You know what's so interesting? All of these headlines, like above the fold in the papers today, Amazon. Yeah. yeah, they're stopping, you know, basically pausing a, a lot of but their corporate hiring, hiring like crazy. No, I hear you. Right. But I mean, I, I am seeing we are seeing listening to yeah. these CEOs saying, we're going to take a beat. Look at the lift also. Uh, Twitter's a different animal, yeah. why they're doing the layoffs. But these companies are responding to something. So you can see the cracks for sure. But I was talking to an economist earlier today who said, you know, it's not fair to say um, that there are that there, there's real weakness in the job market. You have to look hard to find the exceptions, which is the weakness in the job market. It's still very, very strong. But you're right. Looking ahead, these CEOs are saying that's their job to look ahead. Yeah. But I want to ask you about something that Karine Jean-Pierre, the press sure. secretary at the White House, said just right before this jobs report came out. The nation could be teetering on the edge of a recession. How will the White House prepare for that? 
So want to be clear, there is we are not uh, there are no meetings or anything happening like that in preparing for a recession. What we're seeing right now is a strong uh, labor market. And the reason we're seeing the strong labor market is because of the bold actions that this president has taken. Does it surprise you that the White House is not preparing for a recession? Well, look, the wor something worse is happening right now. 8.2% inflation. Yeah. That's what they're really worried about. And they're spinning in circles trying to figure out to do everything they can. They don't have a lot of levers to do for, for the inflation. I mean, I think the people who are calling for a recession are still calling for a relatively mild and shallow recession. Even Larry Summers has said, oh, and by the way, if we get a recession, it won't be very bad. And entrenched inflation is way worse than anything else. But I know they said this. I think... Look, parsing words here, but she said they're not having meetings. I mean, that doesn't mean that they're not preparing for a recession. I think they are well aware of what the, the headwinds are and, and, also, and what's I happening mean, here. I think but let me just get this. Like, I, I think what we have been saying, what I'm hearing from everyone here, right, from all of you business experts, is that coming out of COVID, we don't really have the metrics exactly. to measure this new exactly. economy. COVID broke the charts. Thank you. <laughs> it broke the charts. And so now we sit here and we're trying to figure out what it means. When I ask economists and CEOs, finish the sentence, the economy is X. Weird. They say confusing. That's my weird. Chaotic. Yeah. Hard to read. Right. You know, they don't yeah. really know exactly. I think it was Jason Furman, an economist, who, who said recently, if you're not a little confused about the economy, yeah. you're not paying attention. Yeah. And that's true, right? Because think about what the pandemic did. It created a lot more savings. So even though inflation is still at 8.2%, People are still spending because they have a cushion, right? So the pandemic did really strange things, not just in terms of our checking accounts and our balance sheets, but also supply chains. So there are a lot of sort of strange things happening that wouldn't normally happen. And they're happening, by the way, all at once. Four days. Four days from the midterms. And we are talking about the number one issue by a mile, right. Christine, right. on voters' minds. Absolutely. And then when they go to the grocery say. store, the bills, bills are higher. Gas, the gas, price of the gas tank, tank gets gas station gets way too much attention, I think, because um, a lot of people, you know, hybrid commuting, fewer commutes, like there's all these different reasons why you could say on paper people could be feeling a little better this time than they did in 2008 when we were also worried about a recession. People feel lousy about the economy. 75% of people we polled say we're already in a recession, you know, so the way people feel, then that becomes real. Yep. Just bouncing off that, I know we talked about what the White House is and isn't preparing for. If you're at home and you're hearing these recession yeah. warnings and you can prepare, you want to I think one of the smartest things yeah, we heard this advice. morning was from Frank Luntz, where he said it's not necessarily about inflation or the jobs. It's about right. affordability. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. That's the issue. And look, yeah. it's weird. You're right. We have low unemployment, but yet people can't find jobs. It's just it's so We've odd. never seen anything like it. Thank, that, thank you both. Thank you both. Great, Good great, great. You. Appreciate it. Just uh, you just heard the details on the latest jobs report. Who better to talk about that than Bobby Flay himself, who employs more than 250 people in the restaurant business, really hit hard by COVID. He is our guest visiting barista this morning. <laughs> Bobby Flay will join us. It's like Andy later. Cohen's clubhouse on Bravo. Just talking about the October jobs report, uh, one industry that continues to face dire staffing shortages, that's restaurants. Competition for workers remain intense, remains intense. Uh, about two-thirds of restaurants say that they are understaffed, that's according to an industry survey, and then there's the soaring food prices 
supply chain, log jams, and so on and so forth. So joining us now, the man who knows what it takes to run a restaurant, chef, restaurateur, entrepreneur, and, and I would say personal friend of mine, Bobby Flay. His new show, Beat Bobby Flay Holiday Throwdown, premieres Tuesday on the Food Network and Discovery Plus. I can't wait for Bobby Flay to invite all three of us on yes. this program. No problem. Love Good to, to have see you. you. How Good are to see you? you too. As you're watching the job reports, is it, does it, anything resonate with you and oh, yeah. staffing and all that? What does? I mean, the, the thing about restaurants is it's, a, it's, a fo- it's an every night focus group of, of how people are feeling about the economy. Right. Um, you know, and what's happening is it's getting squeezed from every sort of corner and edge. I mean, um, labor's expensive, commodities, meaning, you know, the cost of goods, food, et cetera, is expensive. And of course, occupancy costs is always expensive. The landlords never look, look out for you. I mean, they're always, you know, they have <laughs> very deep pockets and they're, and, and they're not going to, they don't take, they don't take the pressure off. On the, on the other side of it, I think the consumers are feeling the pressure as well. Because they turn on the TV, they they look at social media, media, and they understand that you know we're we're on the brink of some really bad economy here, and so people they tighten their wallet. You think that we're on the brink of a pretty bad economy? Well, they say you're saying they say we are, and so that affects. I do. You do. do. Yeah. I mean, listen. uh, Unfortunately, I've been around long enough to see this happen before. Yes. And uh, ultimately, we we're able to come out of it, but you do have to hold on tight. Um, But I, I I feel like something not good is happening. I mean, you look at all the reports. And I watch what people are, the, the way people are acting in the restaurants. It's a really good meaning, way. Meaning? Meaning like, so the person that, you know, last week was buying a $75 bottle of wine, maybe this week it's a $40 bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. They're making decisions that are actually squeezing the check average in the restaurants. So interesting. And so, you, and so you understand exactly that, you know, it makes it very, very difficult. On the other side of it, uh, the restaurateur, the, the proprietor, is having a hard time making profits. So... People that, that want to come back to work, they want higher salaries, of course, and you know you have to be very competitive to get good labor. Yeah, and what does that look like? Are you able to find people? Because I've heard this is a big issue of everyone that was let go by restaurants at the height of the pandemic, now they're having difficulty hiring good people back. Well, we all said, um, and I say we, meaning the, 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 my, my friends in the, in the business, where is everybody? Like, yeah. you, you thought like, you know, the pandemic hit and everybody would be willing to come back to work right away, but that did not happen. We basically you know, opened the doors and wondered where everybody was. And now people are starting to trickle back. Um, but again, it's, it's very, very, very competitive. And you're right. Listen, Bobby and I both uh, live out on Long Island. And you know Eric Lemonides. Mm-hmm. He owns Almond uh, out in Bridgehampton. I love that and, But people are um, having to provide housing for employees. Uh, for employees because, you know, it's, it's tough. Like, there are incentives. You're having to pay people bonuses. and, and Bonuses, and benefits, anything to, to, to make people feel like, you know, this is the place I want to work. And also, like, you know, the, the problem is, is if somebody comes by and offers your employee an extra dollar an hour, you know, that adds up over the week and over the year. And so they, they'll consider that. So you have to do certain things that are not just about the actual dollar itself to make people feel like they want to stay in your, re- in your, in your restaurant or on your bed. What, what can the people who make laws and the people and the, the financial experts, what can they learn from the restaurant industry as it comes to this new economy? What can you teach them? And what well, are they I, I, I can tell you one thing. The, person, the people that are going to be paying um, for this is the consumers. Um, restaurants are going to have to keep charging more money to survive so that they can actually create jobs. I mean, and, and also survive as a proprietor as well. I mean, it's a, it's a vicious cycle at this point, and it's unfortunate. I say that we're literally a generation away 
of people understanding what it really costs to go eat in a restaurant mm -hmm. and be okay with it. Meaning, all of us, we all pay our own bills. We go to the restaurants. We know that chicken costs $24 in our favorite restaurant. What about, what about if I told you it's going to be $38 next week? Mm -hmm. Right. Money. That's your reaction. So, my, so somebody who's 16 years old right now who's not paying their bills yet, they're going to they're gonna feel comfortable paying that because that's what they, that's what they see and that's what they know. Yeah. We're not ready to do that. All of this is really important, but... We have something more important, which is when Don Lemon was on your show. Oh, oh that's right. <laughs> no. This is yeah, the highlight of Beat. That's right. When life gives you Don Lemon, you make lemonade, baby. <laughs> I watch you all the time. You do? Oh, yeah. And are you cooking or are you just chilling? No, I'm usually at home. <laughs> you have this thing where you're like, somebody says something that you just take a moment and you just go, <sighs> we'll be right back. I mean, you don't even have to say what you're thinking. Can I remind you there's someone else here who's like that? Me? You. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what did Don Lemon I cook and her. was it good? No, Don didn't, Don didn't cook. He just tries to get me beat. That's his role. I did. I, yes. I caused him to lose yes, his Yes, he did. Because yes, exactly. his burger wasn't as well. And that was Alex. Yeah. Um, Alex Bonchelli. Alex Bonchelli. I saw Alex the other uh -huh. night at um, Alba okay. in the city. I tried to, I tried, listen, I try to support local restaurants. Uh, Somehow Don has figured that. out a way to go out to dinner on this. <laughs> Caitlin and I are I, still working on Bobby, that. Do you know for... Eight and a half years, I did not really get to go out and have a proper dinner because I had a show on at 10 o'clock, and now I can go to dinner. It's, it's expensive. <laughs> it's going to get more expensive, Don. It's expensive. It's That's exhausting. the lesson of the day. Yeah, but she's right. I mean, she held up a mirror to you, and, but I think you are also holding up a mirror to the people who um, are in charge of us about, <laughs> no, I mean in charge of the economy and, mm -hmm. and what have you, about what is to come and how, what should be done about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... it's um, Listen, I, we'll get through this. Yeah. The bottom line is that nobody knows when and how long and how, how deep it's going to be. But there's, I mean, the, to me, when I look at numbers, et cetera, that doesn't really matter to me. What matters to me is people's attitudes. That's it. They how they decide. feel. Thank you. How do they feel? How they feel. Bobby, we got to exactly. kick you out of a gig again. You're out of here. Thank okay, you. I'm gone. Bobby, <laughs> thank you. It's so Thanks good to see you. Thanks for joining us. It's really great Congratulations to, to all three of you. Thank you so very fantastic. much. I wish we would have well, talked about Rotel versus... Queso. You know, queso That's because there for the next, really we'll bring you back. It's coming. It's coming. Bobby's new show, Beat Bobby Flay Holiday Throwdown, premieres Tuesday on the Food Network and Discovery Plus. Hmm, I love how go. the control room's like making me read this tease. Like I have some investment in Don's LSU Tigers taking on Caitlin's Alabama Crimson Tide this weekend. Who will win? And more importantly, which anchor <laughs> will earn that, bragging that, 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 rights? That, that, that. Oh, that's your fight that's song. That's Alabama's fight that? song you're oh. dancing to. <laughs> okay, I think I've already won. Like, we can just end the show now. So, <laughs> an SEC showdown, Alabama and LSU will battle it out tomorrow in one of I the can't. biggest college football games this season. For the record, I told Don to take the sunglasses off. People in the Midwest are like turning off their TVs right Just now. Just the sunglasses? Well, this uh, is what we did at LSU to try to hide that we had been drinking for the game. Well, we never drink. We Don has not been drinking. All right, the rivalry da, 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 this morning clearly is real. Don was dancing to the Alabama fight song earlier. Um, obviously, Alabama and LSU are playing on Saturday. If you did not understand why Don has had an outfit change during the break. The question, of course, is who is going to win? I have paid our senior data reporter, Harry Enton, with this morning's number to say Alabama.
I got my, I'm wearing my Columbia Lions jersey. Is that for me? Is that for me? That's for you. That's not a thing. That, that is a thing. That is for me. Hey, guys, my uh, my college boyfriend was the quarterback. Oh, yeah, I, I, I left Did my athletic. Here we go. Who's going to no. win? Okay. Give us a date. He's a great I, I guy. I left my athletic days behind back in uh, elementary school. I'll just say that. All right. Oh, I like the, our chances. Caitlin likes this. Not a big surprise. Chance of winnings. Saturday's matchup, Alabama at 69%. LSU at 31%. So, hey, Don has a little bit of a shot here, but Caitlin is the clear favorite. Let's give you a little history on Alabama versus LSU all-time. Alabama all-time, the clear leader with 55 wins. LSU with 26 wins. Five ties back in the day where you could get that in college football. You can't get that anymore since, then, I believe, 1996. But let's take a look at the chance of winning the national title because that's, of course, what we're all interested in at the end of the day. You'll notice Ohio State, 27%. Georgia, 22%. They're actually taking on Tennessee this weekend in another big SEC matchup, 11%. Alabama at 10%. And I apologize to Don, but LSU has a less than 1% chance of winning the national title. It's math, Don. I don't necessarily control it. <laughs> Finally, college football fandom by region. Poppy, of course, is from that Midwest. There are more yes. fans in the Midwest than anywhere else at 41%. Yes. The South, Donna Caitlin at 40%. No one on this crew is from the West, but I will say Neil Sadaka, my uncle, his current <laughs> residence, is in fact in the West in California. And Harry, of course, from the Northeast, just 25%. But I love my Columbia football line. Thank, thank the Lord for you representing um, for me. I'm just going to stay out of this. It's, it's, not, say, it's not the same, though, Caitlin, is it? I mean, the SEC, it's like the... It's the it, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't even compare. Doesn't compare. The SEC is a different world. I will say, I don't even think our biggest competitor this weekend is really LSU. It's our own unforced errors that Alabama <laughs> has had. They have not been amazing on the road yet, but I think that they're ready for this. We had a bye week last week. Can you tell yeah. people, because we hope he's watching, who's this in front of you? This is a signed photo of uh, Nick Saban that may yeah. or may not sit in my office, and Zach may or may not have furiously run down to get. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, by the way, if you can't, this is just LSU. This sits in my office. It feels like college game day where yeah. Lee Corso makes his pick, and he puts on the head of the mascot of whoever he picks, and you should be, like, putting on the LSU tiger Here, head right now. <laughs> Here's the thing I know I look. Crazy, but this is actually how I dress if I go to uh, an LSU game. Uh, on the rare occasion that I, because I, I don't have a chance to go as much as, as I used to. But here's, uh, here's the thing. Uh, Caitlin and I were supposed to go down to Death Valley, to Baton Rouge, yep. and go to the game. Next week is going to be so crazy when it comes to the midterm elections. We decide, like, we don't need, we had a lot this week. We didn't need that on our plates. And plus, I did not want her being harassed and to feel <laughs> bad at Death Valley, at tailgating oh, in the stadium when we win and she loses. I am so. a really sore loser, I will say, um, mm. but I have full, full confidence. And also when you're emotionally invested yeah. as I am, it's sometimes better to just watch it from your house. Yeah. Your neighbors don't care if you're yelling at the TV. Yeah, round the bowl, down the hole. <laughs> Are you gonna take roll. the sunglasses off to say goodbye Thank to you, people? Harry. Thanks everybody, <laughs> I appreciate it. CNN Newsroom starts right after the break. Have a great weekend, everyone. We're in real time. <laughs> Go Tigers. That was so great. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.